You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. We are proud to announce a truly outstanding rock opera film, Tommy. some of the greatest names in music and the cinema. Tommy by The Who and based on the rock opera by Peter Townsend stars Anne Margaret, Oliver Reed, Jack Nicholson, Elton John, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, Roger Daltrey as Tommy. Don't miss Tommy, the film. Your senses will never be the same again. Good morning, converts. I'm your brother, Mike White, and I welcome you to The Projection Booth, a podcast with a difference, never mind the weather. When you listen to The Projection Booth, the episodes last forever. Anyway, I'm joined today by Mr. Skiz Sizzik. I'm free. And also with us is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at Ken Russell's Tommy, released in 1975. This is an interpretation of the Who's rock opera of the same name, which stars Roger Daltrey as the titular Tommy. After witnessing a scene of his mother and her lover killing his father, Tommy is rendered psychosomatically blind, deaf, and mute. He becomes a whiz at pinball, starts a religion, and is eventually brought low as a false prophet. If that wasn't spoilery enough, we will be doing plenty more spoiling this film as we go along. So you have been warned. So, Skiz, when was the first time you saw Tommy, and what did you think? I wanted to see it when it came out. I was, uh, was at 75, so I was about nine, and I kept seeing the clips on TV. I think they showed parts of the uh, the Acid Queen scene of uh, Tina Turner with her mouth quivering in that shot near the end. And then the uh, the scene of Anne Margaret with the uh, first the suds and then the beans, and then the pinball wizard scene, which that song was all over the radio. So I I wanted to see this movie so bad. Again, I was nine. I didn't get to see it until probably 1983, uh, when it was a I believe it was a double feature of Tommy and Pink Floyd the Wall at the cool uh, alternative theater in my town. It really lived up to uh, 
to my my hopes and dreams. And by that point, I'd become a huge fan of the Who album. Like when the movie first came out, I'd barely even heard of the Who. So uh, I had a few years to really absorb that album in its entirety. So getting to see the movie version of it was like, yeah, can't wait. How about you, Heather? Tommy, I first got to see Tommy. Actually, I only got to see part of it initially. And this was in the early 90s. Uh, and I was in seventh grade. And it was on TBS. And I caught, I was like, oh my God, Tommy's on. And I literally got it midway to where like Anne Margaret and Roger Daltrey are in the car and she's singing like, Tommy, can you hear me? You know? And my best friend at the time also was watching it at her house. And the next day we were like, did you see Tommy? And she's like, yeah, like, was that his girlfriend or his mom? <laughs> Cause she caught it midway too. And, you know, Anne Margaret's only, I think like a handful of years older than Roger Daltrey, but we, but we loved it. And obviously I went back to it. Um, as, and as soon as I could catch it again on TV, I taped all of it, would just watch it over and over again. And I, I absolutely fell in love with it, thought it was completely fantasmagorical. And of course, that was the, the seed planted for my, my lifelong crush on Oliver Reed. It's a good crush to have. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> I was looking all over the internet for the early commercial uh, that this used to play as a commercial, the whatever Broadway comes to Detroit kind of thing. And it was all over Saturday morning cartoons. And when you're a kid, you know, you just basically repeat the commercials that you hear. So that whole see me, feel me, touch me, heal me thing. We used to sing that all the time and we had no idea really what it was from. And then years and years later, I finally figured out that it was from this thing called Tommy. And then finally saw the movie. Uh, I think it was, Probably on 16, it might have been 35 at a U of M screening. And oh my God, it was the first time. It wasn't the first time I'd experienced Ken Russell, but it was the first time I'd experienced Ken Russell of this era. And it just completely blew me away. And it was one of those where I immediately got the soundtrack, the movie soundtrack, and just like played the shit out of those on LP, probably to much to the annoyance of my, um, uh, roommates at the time, but I didn't care because I just loved it so much. Did you ever like, even if you were by yourself, reenact some of the scenes? Because that's something we would do. Like we would do, like because I would of course play Oliver Reed and I do the whole like that's a doctor I found kid cute like that. I would do the whole grin and little strut and everything. I might have been a little too old for that, though. I've definitely <laughs> have spilled baked beans on myself before. Oh wow! <laughs> Are you covered in baked beans right now? <laughs> Not right now. Just chocolate. Not covered. Just certain particular areas. So, Mike, when you got a whole hog into the whole land of Tommy, like, what was your take? Was this your first introduction to the album was the movie? And then you went to The Who, like the original Who album? Yeah, I really wasn't that much into The Who when I was younger. I really wasn't into a lot of different rock and roll stuff. What I would hear on the radio, like when I was a teenager, when WCSX 94.7 started up, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Because I listened to a lot of oldies when I was younger. I also listened to a lot of classical and then started to get more into like the rock stuff as things went along. But like, I really never listened to Led Zeppelin or uh, Black Sabbath or a lot of The Who until I was in college. So we even had like a little library in the dorm that I lived in where you could go and check out albums. So I remember checking out uh, The Who Sells Next and a couple other Who albums. And those were my first exposures to those. Oh, nice. 
I didn't grow up, you know, Mormon or anything, but sometimes I feel like I was a little sheltered. I find with the Who, like, it's, you know, everybody has kind of their own pace. Like, because it, it took me a while, as much as I love this movie, I always liked the Who, but that was like a slow burn band for me. Like, I instantly glommed onto bands like the Kinks and the Tubes, but the Who, like, now I just completely love them. But it took me a while, like, with the, uh, but the, oh, the movie, this movie, and this was my first Ken Russell as well, which is very sacred. This and The Boyfriend, weirdly enough. I still haven't seen The Boyfriend. I started with Crimes of Passion. And, oh, wow. Yeah, which I saw way too young. And <laughs> then Layer the White Worm and oh, nice. Whore. And then this one was probably like my fourth one. Wow. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and as far as The Who, like, I did have a cutout VHS of The Kids Are All Right. So I got a lot of that era of The Who, which I know kind of has some older and newer. I mostly knew The Who as being that band that they talked about on WKRP in Cincinnati. Eleven kids lost their lives last night at that concert. What are you talking about, Travis? Is this some kind of bad joke? Sir, I wish it were. Well, I was there. I I didn't see anything. None of us did. It happened before the concert started, Mr. Carlson. There was this large crowd outside the Coliseum. They'd been waiting there for hours and hours. It was very cold. Somebody inside decided to open some doors. There was some reserved seating. Mostly general admission. That's what they call festival seating. That's what they call a stampede. That's what happened. The Who didn't even know what had come down until after the show. Skiz, was this was this your first Ken Russell film? I think it was. I'm trying to think of any of his films that I saw before it, and I can't imagine. I mean, I, cinematically, I was pretty sheltered until like the mid '80s. So this was before I was, even really had a way to explore. I don't know movies except for uh, late night television. Yeah, I don't think TV was playing a whole lot of of Ken stuff until like cape like the cable era for sure. Actually, Mike, if it makes you feel any better, I saw Lair the White Worm at a way too young age. And I actually woke up in the middle of the sequence where there's that dream vision of like the crucifixion and there's nuns being raped and the, and the worms wrapped around. I was like, I literally thought I was in hell for a second. I was like, oh my God. I was like, oh wait, it's just Lair the White Worm. Okay, all is well. Have either of you guys ever seen the stage play of Tommy or the rock opera? Yes. Oh, I haven't. Yeah, it came to Baltimore, I don't know when that was, the 90s, 2000s or something. Kind of went not expecting it to be very good, and I was right. But it was still just kind of fun to hear the music played live and see this spectacle on a stage. I appreciate all the changes that they made to the musical, having never seen it, but hearing about it, like updating it from World War One to World War Two just because that carried such a psychic scar for the British people, I think even more than World War I, because World War I was fought in a foreign land, and World War II brought the battle right to their doorstep. I mean, that they were affected by the Blitz it must have had such a, a bigger impact. And then also that the makers of these, this movie and the guys in the Who, if they weren't directly impacted, they lived in that post-World War II Britain, which took so long to recover from. 
especially, you know, getting to see it as a younger person and realize very early on that how sheltered, like, us as Americans kind of have been for more for a long time because it's like i mean right early on and it's just something a detail i'd actually kind of forgotten until rewatching this the movie for the umpteenth time recently for this podcast is you know i mean like early on i mean you see like a dead kid in the rubble it's like there's you know there is no holding back with the grit and the and the violence, of course, we get that wonderful like Ken Russellian is that a term <laughs> is now like touch of the and you have it in your notes, which I love it is the showgirl with the gas mask. All those showgirls, they're so amazing. Yeah, the, and the one that t- comes right up to the camera and basically looks right at us. Right, which is uh, that's the thing. There's so many cool moments in this movie of of certain characters kind of breaking the fourth wall, and I love this whole preamble the overture that we have before we even get the first lyric and that i think it's a really you know it's a, it's a beautiful way of telling a story it's all done with just music and the actors faces there's no dialogue there's no singing but getting that whole story of tommy's mom and dad and i love that i mean that it starts with that opening shot of tommy's dad in front of the sun and then that we have that beautiful bookend at the end with tommy in the exact same place and it's like he's returning to that idyllic land that idyllic time that we see at the beginning with the mom and dad there but just having that whole story of the father going off to war and and potentially burning up in a plane and just all of those things before we even get the first lyric of a song. Yeah, I do uh, kind of wish, though, that – I mean, I like that they re-recorded the, uh, the Who's original album and changed things around and didn't slavishly try to, to recreate it. But I do kind of hate the way the music sounds during that overture. <laughs> like, I kind of wish they didn't have those electric organ sounds so much there. I, 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 it's one point, part where I wish they would have just used the track from the album. That definitely seems like a product of um, like I don't know, kind of being like a, a Robert Stigwood production. I kind of feel like any musical he touched, sort of, or was attached to, sort of has that. And I mean, in the, in the case of this movie, it's it's good. He also was attached to Sgt. Pepper, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> which is a movie I I will hate watch every few years, usually drunk, but uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I I actually I love the Laurent kind of circular imagery too and especially like right down to like tommy like cro- like going through the waterfall towards the end of the movie where you know you see uh his parents you know I mean, he possibly could have been conceived in that very water and it's there's something really beautiful just a whole birth death and rebirth cycle going on it's it's just you know and just right off the gate like the primary colors like god the color use i mean in every i mean ken russell's use of imagery and everything he touched is is i would say unforgettable like there are painters that would kill to have the ken russell you know like eye and vision and just everything just pops yeah, it is just such a gorgeous film, and I really wanted to call out the costumes. The costumes are just so great. I mean, even just the little touches on the costumes. I mean, um, even when it comes to like Anne Margaret's earrings and seeing like that she'll have those really elaborate earrings through so much of it, and then she'll have the little pinball earrings towards the end, and just how we get that pinball Im- imagery throughout this whole movie over and over and over again, and just all the circles and the shiny 
stuff and it just it is so captivating to the eye. It's just so pleasurable to watch. And it's like one of those movies where it's hard for me to even start to look at the background just because I'm just captivated by whatever's moving in front of the camera. I, I love the, uh, all that and, and the design. I, I think about the, the, uh, the scene with, uh, Eric Clapton, who's really pretty wooden in that scene, but it's such a great scene. And the whole, uh, it's not just Marilyn Monroe, but it's like Warhol's idea of Marilyn Monroe worked into this church. Uh, I'm not even really sure how to describe it, but I'm sure we've all seen it and we know what I'm talking about. But every time I that rewatching the film recently, I kind of felt like for the first time, it took a while to really kick in for me. Like I, I was kind of not as into it as I used to be until Roger Daltrey shows up on sta- on screen, which is that scene. And suddenly from that moment on, it just doesn't stop. And that scene is such a great way to just start the whole rest of the movie from there. For years, my relationship with this movie is I kind of loved everything up to that point. And, but now, but as I've gotten older over the years, I think I've just, I love it all equally kind of as a collective. I still love, gosh, like the whole Amazing Journey sequence where, you know, after, you know, Tommy has had his trauma and, you know, they take him to an arcade and it just, all of a sudden there's just like the surrealism imagery overload. You know, you have like little Tommy with a black box on his head on a beach. That's another thing I love about this movie is there's a repetition of sort of waterfront imagery. I don't know. I always think of the ocean as being kind of like the great womb of the earth. So I don't know if there's, you know, maybe it's like that, you know, but. Inseminato. Inseminato. Yeah. Luckily, nobody explodes in this movie. (laughs) But, uh, but then you have like that dual screen where it's like all of a sudden, you know, Tommy's dad's in this crucifix type position and then all of a sudden it zooms in and there's a pinball and it splits open and it's like the two Tommies and I think the little boy that plays Tommy is amazing and I typically do not like kid actors like I most of them to me are what gamma people in the gamma community calls Kenny's like anybody's watched a, a, a bad gamma film, there's always the Kennys, and you're like, "Oh Jesus, this kid needs to die," <laughs> you know. And then you feel bad for saying that. But this little the little kid that plays Tommy here is just, I think he's just innately so good, and you just really feel for him. And of course, we have the amazing Christmas sequence, which might be the only time that he flinches, the little kid, because <laughs> when Oliver Reed pulls off that Santa Claus mask and he like yells, you know, Tommy, can you hear me? I think the kid might flinch at that point. Otherwise, he's completely stone-faced after he loses his eyesight, hearing, and and ability to speak. It's just, he is so good at that. And yeah, you were talking about the way that the pinball splits open, and I love all of this twin twinning that we have throughout so much of this. You know, I talked about the, 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 the mirrors are circular. We have so many mirrors in this, it becomes so central to it. But then you even have, like, literal twins throughout at least like two sequences the birth of tommy the potential rebirth of tommy when he uh, goes to see the acid queen and then you have tommy himself being twinned in that area of uh the the amazing journey spot and then also him there in front of all of those mirrors and just being split into at least six tommies at that point 
Oh god, I love I love that shot. Well, and it all and the amazing journey. There's like the sphere where there's like looks like a hundred little tiny Tommies just all dancing, just frogging like crazy. Uh, yeah, no, the twin imagery. It's funny because the nurses and this is probably completely accidental. For they made me think of uh, Jean Roland's Lips of Blood, like the two twin vampires in that. But I think that's just because I love that movie too. So I think it's a complete coincidence. The gift that I think Ken Russell gives you as a filmmaker, in addition to just making really compelling whatever kind cinema, is that you could, we've, all three of us have watched this film several, multiple times over the years, and I always find something new, which is unreal given how many times I've watched this. Like, when I was a teenager, I watched stuff like Rocky Horror and Pink Flamingos way too many times. I probably should be on should have therapy or something given how many times I rewatched some of them and I still enjoy them. But you know, at this time, you know, I can't say I find new something new, you know, I still enjoy it with Tommy. There's always some new little detail where I'm like, Oh, wow. I never noticed until watching it these last few times, the way that Frank, uh, the Oliver Reed character and um, Mrs. Walker, does she ever have a name? I can't remember if Mrs. Walker has a name, but the Anne Margaret character, the way that their outfits get more and more posh as the years go on, especially after Tommy has his whole pinball wizard break but some of those outfits like when frank comes in and he's got the uh the the bullet belt and he's out has been out hunting and it's just like where are you getting your money from i'm just really curious how he's able to support this lavish lifestyle because i think that's before tommy becomes the pinball wizard but just yeah to see that and then also that Frank becomes more and more posh in his accent. So when he is giving the check to uh, Jack Nicholson, <laughs> that whole, ooh, I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. Okay. You just brought up something that is literally one of my favorite things on the planet. And that's Oliver Reed and that scene coughing on the check. Mm. And hand, which, because, okay little a, a little mini rant here I, okay I love Jack Nicholson as an actor he's a great actor no argument but how am I supposed to believe my, my one of I live one of two complaints about this movie is how a stone called Fox like Anne Margaret married to Oliver Reed a man amongst men is getting wooed by Jack Nicholson no <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Well, they were already a couple in carnal knowledge. Come on. Ew. I just, no. No. (laughs) At least he wasn't Art Garfunkel. Come on. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Ray Davies, sure. You know, David Warner, absolutely. Jack Nicholson? I don't know. I wouldn't kick 1975 Jack out of bed. I would. I'd get the hell out. You're a great actor. We could be friends, but you gotta go. If you wanted me to hold chicken salad between my knees, I would do it in an instant. I would tell him, no, sir. No, sir, I don't like it. Skiz, you brought up the eyesight for the blind scene. I re-listened to the Who's original, like, album, and of the the version of that on the album versus the version on this movie are vastly different. It's also the only song that Pete Townsend didn't write, right? It's like a Sonny Boy Williamson song or something. 
Yeah, I I actually, and it's obviously everybody's mileage is going to vary. I completely agree with you about Clapton being wooden. That would be my second, and again, very minor complaint. I'm not the biggest Eric Clapton fan. I mean, I like Cream, but that's more because of Jack Baker, or Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker, or if they had a kid. It'd be Jack, Jack Baker. Baker. <laughs> who would go on to play Sticks in Happy Days <laughs> and be a new way folker. Because, yeah, especially because you have Clapton is wood, and it's like he took a bunch of quaaludes. Oh, he was on a lot of stuff. He was having a lot of difficulties at the time. I believe it. Like, oh, he's terrible in it. And then, especially when you see Arthur Brown, who's like a fucking pagan god emerging from the bowels of the earth. Like, he is, he is on fire. He is the god of hellfire. He's bringing us hellfire in this. And he's just, you see him and you're just, your blood's pumping again. You're like, ah, oh, yes. Like, I, uh, in a perfect world, I think that I just should have had Arthur Brown sing the whole song. Yeah, that would have been really wicked if he had been able to do that, especially because of that god of hellfire image that he was already bringing to it. I like this whole thing that Russell had made The Devils and was looking at doing not necessarily a sequel, but like an answer film called The Angels about false religions. And it just kind of lined up a little bit. I know this is probably apocryphal because you can't trust anybody on anything, but, but him saying like his next project was going to be The Angels that fell through and he was able to kind of revisit that idea of false religion in this and I, I really love those scenes, like with the worship of Marilyn and all of the people coming up and kissing her feet, and that wonderful shot that up the the skirt shot <laughs> of Marilyn again with the mirror image that you have, and again I think it's a circle that she's on, and just that uh, the whole idea of this false. Uh, idol, this relic that is going to cure you, which is right out of, I mean, this, I, I'm trying to remember, we used to run a uh, commercial when I worked at a cable station about a miraculous icon that you could come in and touch and like be healed and stuff. It's exactly this Maryland statue. And what's the difference between the two? Not a whole hell of a lot, especially when we're talking about pop culture and the worship of celebrity. And, you know, this is 75 and still like, how many movies or TV shows or whatever do we get about Marilyn? You know, there was a time there where it's just like, there was like the Norma Jean movie and there was another Marilyn movie and it was just like, okay, we get it. You know, she's iconic, but she's elevated even higher in this movie to this religious relic. I love this whole idea of him looking at false prophets and false religions through this lens um, because it's just perfect for, for this, especially because you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, like Tommy does have a downfall. So it's not like he ascends to heaven at the end. He basically, you know, everybody gets punished for him being this false prophet. Of course, I'm glad you mentioned The Devils, which is another one of my absolute favorite movies ever. Um, I think with like the case of both Marilyn and Tommy, and one could even, I think, argue successfully that any sort of religious figure, whether it's a saint, whether it's, you know, whether it's Jesus, whether it's whoever, is there's always this thing of taking these figures and when you blow them up so big, you lose finer details. Like Marilyn Monroe was a human. You know, she was a, you know, she was a human being, but when you make somebody an icon and an idol, they lose all of their humanity. 
And in this, in the same case of organized religion, I think you could argue people kind of lose the sight of actual messages. I mean, how many, you know, I don't know, I don't want to get too chewy, but it's like how many people that are fundamentalist Christians probably couldn't even quote an actual verse of Christ, you know, like they mainly know like the birth and then like revelations. <laughs> like I've known people like that, you know, it's like, there's something about losing. I think when you, when you do that, when you make anything an idol, you know, you kind of, you lose the, any sort of truth and beauty to it. If it wasn't in a Mel Gibson movie, I don't count as being in the Bible. I, I know. Lethal Weapon 2 is a great movie. <laughs> Diplomatic community. Yeah, I love the use of the crosses in here as well, and the crosses that have the pinball on the top. And I like the way that Russell mixes that imagery with the poppy imagery, and that the poppies become the crown of thorns for Tommy when he's in the uh, the Acid Queen scene. And I also like this whole repetition of things that we have, like um, the uh, we'll hear from Kit Power later on, but in his book, he makes a point about how everything is repeated in threes, you know, this whole do you think it's all right? Blah, 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 blah. And just like there's that, do you think it's all right happens three times each time. And in the movie itself, there's like going to the Maryland thing, going to see a doctor I know, going to see the acid queen. We're trying these cures three times. You know, there's the trials of uh, cousin, Cur- cousin Kevin, Uncle Ernie, and then Tommy in the mirror. So it's like each thing gets to be repeated three times. And it's almost like this magical number that this musical has. Oh, wow. I love that. It's the, it's the Holy Trinity. Exactly. On a completely different note, Oliver Reed dressed as a teddy boy. Oh, my God. Is that not one of the greatest <laughs> things you've ever witnessed in your life? When he's got his green coat on, I love him more and more. I do. And when he's got his green socks on, I love him even more. Those neon green socks. And he's wearing floods? Is he supposed to be wearing floods? He can wear whatever he wants. <laughs> I know, but it's, it's wild. I love the acting he gives us in that. And I don't know if it's a diopter shot or if it's just a really wide angle lens, but when Tommy and his mom are singing in the bedroom and he's outside and you just see Frank's face react to those things, that is just amazing to me. I love Oliver Reed's face. It reads face in that scene. His facial reactions throughout so much in in the movie just is a source of enjoyment for me. Like when they're, again, not to go back to the Amazing Journey scene, but like when he's got little Tommy in front of the little like gun, little toy gun, and they're like blowing down or, you know, shooting like enemy planes. And he, of course, he's completely oblivious to like, you know, poor Mrs. Walker's like PTSD <laughs> about, you know, about such things. But even like, you could see his mouth go like, like that. And at one point he's looking at her doing it, like, like he's being a brat. And this is Oliver. This is Frank. This isn't Tommy being a brat. <laughs> this is her husband. And just, and then like, you know, when you have the whole, uh, like uncle Ernie sequence and he's like walking up to confront Ernie. I mean, he looks like a G man. I love that. And when he pulls out that lighter and lights it and that flame is so high in front of his face, I'm just like, what the hell is he going to do? Shall we talk about Uncle Ernie? If we must, we must. No, yeah, definitely. Uh, Uncle Ernie, who 
I think the first time I watched this, I didn't realize how pervasive he is in the movie. I didn't realize that he was in the Acid Queen scene. And I'm always curious, what was his relationship to Frank before the movie began? You know, Frank has had this whole life. He ends up somehow at this holiday camp. He seems to know his way around some of the seedier parts of London, and he seems to know Ernie, and, you know, here they're good friends, it looks like, so I'm really curious what that pre-Tommy Frank is like. I mean, I figured Uncle Ernie was his brother, right? He's already at the camp, isn't he, at the beginning, when the when Mrs. Walker goes to the camp the first time, isn't Uncle Ernie? He's there? there? I never noticed him there. I, I could be thinking, I know he's, he's playing the organ... I, I could be remembering this incorrectly, but I just assumed he was Frank's brother and Frank just sort of like, you know, takes him under his wing all the time because he's kind of, Oh, uh, he's very troubled. That's an understatement. That <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. You know, when I, when I was a kid and I watched Tommy, I honestly, a lot of the stuff about this character went completely over my head and I think part of it was because Keith Moon is adorable. Like he, as a, as a person was just so kind of, kind of crazy, but in a really charming way. And I was also a teenage girl. So I don't know if I was just like, Oh, that's, he's whimsical. I just really thought Uncle Ernie was whimsical. And then when I was, that I, I didn't watch the movie for a few years and I watched it again in college and then it hit me and I'm like, Oh my God, he's a pedophile. <laughs> I was like, so horrified. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> this is scandalous. And poor Tommy, geez. But you know, that's the thing. I, I feel like there's nothing more dangerous in this world than the, than teenage girls and their hormones. That, Cause that's some of my friend Nikki and I thought, you know, when cousin Kevin played by the great, Paul Nicholas, who really should have gone on to a bigger career. Like, I don't know if he was another one who just, his career just got kind of like, you know, gutted by the failure of Sgt. Pepper, the movie, or, but Paul Nicholas is great. And, uh, but you know, at the end where he's like, I've no, uh, you know, all sad because he doesn't have anybody else to play with after he's abused the shit out of poor Tommy. We were both like, oh, poor Kevin. And now I'm like, God, we were psychotic. What was wrong with us? But, Paul Nicholas is a cutie, and I guess when you're 13. Well, both he and Keith Moon just play these roles to the hilt. I mean, that's the one thing that I would say everybody in this movie, nobody underplays their role. You know, you even look at just, except for Clapton, those faces, even the faces that Elton John makes at the beginning of the pinball wizard sequence when he's like frowning at the camera. I just love his face in that whole thing and just how mad he gets throughout the whole scene. And my God, the, that fucking outfit that he's wearing and those, the fucking shoes that Elton John is wearing. Oh my oh. God. It just, it blows my mind every single time. I'm just like, how did they even get him to stand up in these things? My my husband, Chuck, has, for years, he's had the joke about how he's wanted to see Tommy on ice, <laughs> but only but only if they have Elton John reprise his role, and there's, like, skates on those giant boots. <laughs> those blades would be so big. I mean, if we could have uh, Rick Wakeman do Merlin on ice, just saying. <laughs> I think we need to bring the whole ice capades thing back. That's a it's a trend that has been long forgotten. That uh oh god, I love Elton John in this. And I I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion. I actually prefer his version of Pinball Wizard to the Who's. I mean, I love the Who's, but I don't know, there's just something like Elton's just got this kind of meanness 
with it that I really, really dig. I love that version when it was on the radio when the soundtrack album first came out. And uh, and that was before I'd ever heard the Who's version of it. But I don't think I'd really heard it since unless I was watching the film. So like watching the film again recently reminded me of how much I loved when that song would come on the radio because they do so much more with it than the original Who version. I mean, they, they have a whole lot of extended instrumental sections, I guess, so they can get the action in the film and everything. But it 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 rocks. I don't tend to think of Elton John as being the clearest enunciator in the world. See Benny and the Jets. But he enunciates better in that song than Pete Townsend does. And I understand the lyrics a lot more in the Elton John version. And I like it more for that because there are certain things, certain lyrics in the Pete Townsend version where I'm just like, what the fuck did you say? That doesn't make any sense. And then I would hear it in the, the Elton John version and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense when you sing it that way. Okay, okay, I got it. That's funny you say that. I had a similar epiphany with this movie and listening to the original Who album, because the, um, the Christmas song, for years, I thought there was a line that Oliver Reed was singing that was furthing. And I don't know what furfing is, and I realized listening to the hoots anything. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and I mean, also, you know, keep in mind, I'm not, I'm not too proud to ever admit a folly. Like this is the same girl that for years thought David Boy was singing. He looks like a beanbag too, and uh, you know, rebel, rebel. So we used to say for fame, uh, my friend Mitch used to say, "Jello for me, Jello for you." I got to get my records back. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to sing that the next time I hear Faye. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm through with that. I knew a girl that thought Stevie Nicks was singing Tampax instead of Tanback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the sponsorship. She could have made that deal. Tampax, Tampax. I feel a little bad for the listeners because normally I try to go through these things in some sort of order, but it, this is just too much fun. Just like saying, I love this. I love this. You're talking about the Christmas scene, the outfits in that scene, and just how they're all from like the same area of the color wheel. And especially when the men and the women stand around Tommy and all the men have those shades of brown and all the women have those shades of like orangish red. Yes. Just so good. And my God, Anne Margaret's outfits in this thing, just killer. And she is killer. And I love that. The way that Oliver Reed is just like, just trying to struggle through singing this stuff. And then she's got that almost operatic style. So when she's just belting those songs out, it's like, holy shit, man. She's already great, but it just makes her look even better, which is uh, almost impossible to do. But she is phenomenal when, when she will hit those notes and you're just like, man, she owns this role. Uh, she owns it, signed, sealed, and delivered. Like, she, vocally, but also just, there's so many moments in this movie where she looks just, like, she's just been through the ringer. Like, oh, yeah. she, uh, you know, like, this woman gave everything to this role. Like, the definition of being a trooper. And, um, you know, and just, God, what a career. I mean, to think that, like, the same person who was in, you know, Bye Bye Birdie and Kitten with the Whip... Got to be in Tommy. Like, I love that. I believe she was nominated for an Oscar. She for her was. Role in this. Yes. Yeah. Uh, she didn't win because all awards are fallacies. <laughs> <laughs> 
King in the castle, king in the castle. Have a chair, I have a chair. Did you hear the story about her cutting her hand during the whole champagne scene? No, no, what happened? So she, you know, throws the bottle and it smashes the thing. And then she's like getting closer and closer to the TV. And allegedly she, I mean, this comes from both Ken Russell and from Anne Margaret. So I tend to believe it. She sliced her hand on the uh, the glass from the TV and they ended up having to take her to the hospital. She kept going for a little while. And then she was just like, yeah, this is bad. And they took her to the hospital and she's covered with all that shit, you know, just <laughs> looks horrible. And her hand, it's like that spot between, it's like the crotch of your hand, the spot between your, oh. your, your uh, finger, main finger and your thumb. And yeah. she was just, it was a real deep cut and it was just, just pouring out blood and they're trying to stop it. And she just starts to look more and more pale and she get, they get to the hospital and they're just like, Hey, uh, we really need you to see this person fast. And they're like, wait, no, we, we have to wait until like the, the orderly comes so they can wheel you into the OR and all this stuff. And they're just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And like caused all this ruckus. And then finally the guy shows up and like, they say that he wheeled her like 10 feet before the doctor would see her. Yeah. So she was really giving her all in this role. Oh, good night. I didn't know about that. That is a horrible place in your hand to get cut, oh, yeah. too. I've I've done it. I don't recommend it. But I didn't I don't have the glamorous story of, of like lacerating myself and, and for my art for Ken Russell though. <laughs> Shit. Right. While well, you're covered in beans and chocolate <laughs> and soap and <laughs> I just oh, have to God. say that people who weren't into the fetish of sploosh were probably really turned on to that after this movie because it's just like i'm not into sploosh but my god am i into her in that form-fitting outfit just covering herself with champagne and or the soap bubbles and all that stuff it's just like okay yeah i can i can see the appeal to this coming up on tonight's show a man who lives his life as a dog proves too much for ben shires oh. to stomach sorry Meryl Fernandez gets into the soggy sex world of splashing. I can officially say I'm not into this. And some women ride an enormous wooden penis down a stream in Japan. But first, Joel Dommett's in Tokyo, feeling rather emotional. It's kind of like how, like, cats probably caused a whole, like, generation of furries. <laughs> Boy, it's funny, because thinking back to, like, how... Like, being a younger person, seeing that scene, and, you know, when you're, like, in your early adolescence, and you're, you know, you're hormonal, but you're still kind of, like, not quite sure, like, what is sex? I'm really, what? And then she's, like, humping a pillow. It's, it was a lot to take in. <laughs> but, uh, she does it with a plum and a plush. But also, again, like, you talk about that repetition of imagery. It's like, she's got, she's in that great, like, pinball type i don't know what those kind of chairs are called they're like a spear chair you see them a lot in like the 60s and 70s oh yeah i can picture one of those being in like sleeper without a problem you know she's spinning around in that which looks like so much fun like that that looks like fun and then you've got like the flower vase that literally looks like a pinball and just oh there's just so much god there's just so much great imagery and just you know having this like almost like satiny silk white room just getting completely demolished and this viennese actionist 
It is. It's totally Viennese action yes. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Minus the feces. Thank yes. God. <laughs> I kept wondering, now, Ken Russell will always say, oh, I had shot a baked beans commercial when I was younger, and that's why I put the baked beans in here. And I always wondered if it was a, a reference to the Who Sell Out. That's what I figured it was. But I don't know about the commercial. That's what he was saying. Again, I take a lot of what he has to say with a grain of salt because I think he's kind of a major troll a lot of times. And especially when he was later in life and he was just like, yeah, fuck it. I'll say whatever the fuck I want. Oh, hell yeah. He's kid. When you're Kid Russell, you know, you can do whatever you want. Like the man earned it. But um, that Rex Beans jingle is amazing i love the commercial like i love this the absurdity of having these like decadent like i don't know if it's like 17th century these just like dandies these you know these dandies of history getting very excited over baked beans (laughs) 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 at the lady of the manor with her tiny little fork her little tiny delicate fork it's uh and of course you know that leads to to my favorite which is yeah, Frank bursting through the room with that grin. Okay, that Oliver Reed smile. Not to, I know I keep fangirling. Forgive me. I cannot help myself, but it's amazing. Like I could, I could just watch that little that little scene on a loop, and then she's like eating, like eating chocolates. You know, like let's share them tomorrow. Like it's so good. <laughs> and when he takes the bonbon, and I'm just like, this doesn't feel like it was scripted. I love that little like how he takes it, and then he takes it away from her and doesn't he end up eating it he totally takes a bite out yeah of it. i love it and those things too when she is singing with her mouth full or she's singing when she's putting on lipstick or eyeliner and she had sung it that way before and then has to do the actions on film i'm just like oh my god that's wonderful i mean they must have had all this stuff planned out so much before they started shooting even a frame of it Though I noticed that too, especially like the the little kind of drunken little laugh, where you know it's like without Uncle Ernie, like he's had a few too many too, like that. Yeah, forgive me, I swore I didn't sing. <laughs> I wasn't gonna sing on this. Yeah, when she yawns, sings basically. Yeah, it's so good. And what is the deal with the hat? Like, oh, there's God. that has riveted me for decades. Like, she's got this weird. At one point in that sequence, a hat that looks like a. I don't know, like a like an ancient Aztec pyramid. I don't know how how would you even describe that? Like a like a burial mound, like a serpent mound. It's something else. Yeah, it's so just like what is happening here. It kind of reminds me of like Cubert for some reason. The bad guys from Cubert. I suck at that game. Yes, I do. Oh, me too. I always <laughs> jump right off the fucking back because I can't tell spatial dimensions. Oh. Uh, so how much did you guys love the the Sally Simpson sequence? How brilliant is that? I think I wrote in my notes, now's the time for a bathroom break. It is sort of like a like pausing the story for a little while, but I do love that it tells so much story in just one song and visuals. I mean... When she marries the rock musician from California, I've always loved that character. I, I like wish that he could have a bigger role in the film. He is so good. I love when he's picking up those boots and slamming them down. So here's what an idiot I am. You know, you have there. You admitted like you know if you're going to admit to 
mishearing the lyrics. Well, I misunderstood the credits hearing or reading that Arthur Brown was a priest and then forgetting that he was in the earlier scene or thinking he also played Reverend Simpson because I was like, oh, yeah, he's a priest. So uh, for years, I thought that Reverend Simpson was Arthur Brown as well as the earlier character. And yeah, I'm an idiot. Uh, same, same here. Same here. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Hawkwind, so I should be like doubly ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine, imagine if it had been Arthur Brown. That would have been really cool. Oh, the, the actor they have, of course, is great. That's, um, that's can be, I think, another like Ken Russell Hallmark is, to me, he's almost like kind of the great directors of the silent era where every person he puts in a film has a great and striking face. It's not just always people that are traditionally good looking. They're people that are just really just your eyes are drawn to them. They just nobody else looks like them. And it's so nice to see Ken Russell's daughter playing Sally Simpson. Yeah, I like this thing. It is a very self-contained thing. But as I was watching it today, I was just like, okay, yeah, this doesn't really add to the story at all. But okay, whatever. It, it works for me. Uh, and it's a great song. Like That's actually one of my favorite songs on the album. And uh, I, I've always loved that shot when she's getting, you know, during the wedding where her father's just running back and forth between the pews just in a panic. I mean, it's no teddy boy dance or bikers <laughs> fighting, dragging each other around by, you know, the heels from their bicycle or any of that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's it's good. It's good. Oh, God. The teddy boy dance. It's no Roger Daltrey on a hang glider. Let's just put it that way. Or running on green screen. Oh, God. So good. <laughs> Oh god, yeah the the amount of physical stunts and cardio that Daltrey had to do for this movie is harrowing. Well, he's carved out of fucking you know stone in this movie, out of marble. He looks fantastic. Oh god, he I, he looks like a golden god, and and he's doing all this stuff like the hang glider, like he's like perched precariously on like a roof at some point. At one point, he's like on this tiny little castle tower thing he's rock climbing barefoot i'm impressed you don't you don't see too many rock stars doing that or normal humans for that matter i think they saved a lot of money in uh his wardrobe and they're just like here's a pair of jeans you don't need much more (laughs) those were probably his to begin with probably yeah just bring your jeans roger that's all we need (laughs) no no shoes no shirt but you'll still get service Daltrey is fantastic in this as well. And for this being his first acting gig, I know he's gone on to do a lot of acting of various quality over the years, but he is wonderful in this. Of course, he had had like a thousand rehearsals, what with him being Tommy on stage, but that he can pull it off on movies in a movie, because we know that movie acting is not the same as, you know, acting in a rock opera. And also that this isn't. The exact same thing as the rock opera. So he's having to do a lot of different stuff. And I don't think there's any hang gliding in the rock opera. No, he is just like, he is just so compelling as Tommy. And not just because he's, you know, I mean, anybody can cast, again, it's another, like, think magical thing of Russell. I mean, anybody can cast somebody who's good looking, but, you know, can they bring a presence to it? Can they bring something of note? And, and he definitely does. And, uh, you know, you continue, even as, like, his empire grows very quickly, kind of, you know, very commercialist and capitalistic and kind of becomes a bloated thing that's not what he probably originally intended it. You always like Tommy. Like, that's the thing, because even, 
you know, because the main people kind of engineering it are people around him. He's like almost kind of oblivious. And maybe that's kind of part of his sin, I guess, in this film. I hate using the word sin, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, is that he he isn't attuned to it. But you always, I don't know, that's the thing. You always kind of have sympathy for him and like him, you know, and worry about him once things start getting real ugly. I'm always curious how much mrs walker who i found her real name is nora or her character's name is nora that how much nora has to do with the transformation at the end of tommy's holiday camp into this whole thing because we see her on tv and it's basically very much a televangelist type of thing with her getting on there and talking about her son and just how he will change your life and all of this stuff Obviously, it's much more easy to see it with Frank, especially he gets that moment of panic when Tommy's just like, you know, hey, I need you to build an extension, spare no expense. And he gets that look of panic. Frank gets a look of panic when Tommy says spare no expense. And then it kind of dawns on him like, wait a second, I can turn this into a money making thing. And then in that same scene I was talking about with Nora singing about, you know, coming to Tommy's how he turns that map and he's got all those little cross pins with the uh, pinballs on them and just sees all of that and starts to realize what a money-making thing this is and how lucrative this whole gimmick is going to be for them. What they want's not cheap, a pity. Who am I to say no to their dreams or what's this? <laughs> oh God, I know like when he, you know, with Tommy's like, you know, build an extension, you know, spare no expense. And then like, all of a sudden Frank turns into like, he gets that Grinch. He's like serving some Grinch stole Christmas realness. Yeah. You can see the corners of his mouth spinning. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, kind of the cool thing about the story is, you know, I think in the hands of somebody other than the who or Ken Russell, yeah, most people like, kind of always want like a clear villain, a clear villain figure, right? And and Tommy, I mean, even though like there are people that do villainous things, I don't really view Frank or Nora as the as pure villains. Like I think they love Tommy and they try to do right, but they're very human and they're very flawed, which I think most of us, anybody who has like dysfunctional family members that you love, but it's dysfunctional, like I think you can kind of relate to. I like that they're being punished for that sin of killing Tommy's father. That that whole line of the sightless eyes, you know, reflecting back to them the sin that they've, you know, that they've done, this murder that they did, and that they're punished by having him as this living reminder of this thing, this horrible, horrible murder that they committed. That is great to me. Like he is this living symbol for them every single time they see their own kid or her own kid that they're reminded of this awful thing that they did and it's so then things are transformed when he has his awakening and it just becomes this whole you know blossom of like okay great now we can be rich and we can do this but yet they all get taken down again at the end which i'm really grateful for because they are at the end of the day they are murderers and I did. I think it's very smart that they make it Frank and Nora killing the father rather than it being the father and Nora killing Frank. You know that that, that they make that change from the musical, from the 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 rock opera to this movie, and so that they. I mean, it's like uh, you know, it's been a while since I've read my Freud, but it's like 
Tommy seeing the death of his father. I mean, it's uh, it's very much like he's kind of winning that Oedipal battle, but then he's immediately has this other rival with Frank. And then the way that they sing and make him remember or, or unremember and, and block everything out, it's uh, the way that they punish him is, is uh, really kind of horrific. I mean, it's basically like they make him uh, a victim of, like, locked-in syndrome. They, they turn him into uh, Robert De Niro from Awakenings. <laughs> Where's my Awakenings fans out there? It's, come on! I, I never saw that movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> Jeez. I, I saw Word of Angels when I was a kid. Does that count? Is that? Yeah, that's the exact same movie. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I didn't really think about it like that, but that's a cool way to approach the whole sins of the father. Except, I guess in this case, it's sins of the stepfather and mother. You know, the innocent suffering, thanks to the adults. There's also kind of a, a parable, I think, with also how I think kids of abuse were treated, and sometimes still are treated, where it's just like, it didn't happen. And, you know, back then especially, that's, you know, how a lot of families treat it. You know, you, we don't talk about that. But also, just you know, obviously there's a huge danger to doing that, because it's, you know... You repress, you repress something that traumatic, you know, you're going to suffer for it. And, you know, Tommy, def, you know, Tam, Tommy definitely does. It's interesting how that all plays into like Pete Townsend, where he's like, I think something happened to me when I was a kid. I'm not sure what it was, but I think there's something in there. And th- this is me saying this, not Pete Townsend. I think there's something in there that's kind of cousin Kevin, kind of uncle Ernie that had probably happened to him and that he's using his art to work through some of these things. I found a very compelling thing. I mean, Townsend definitely has some issues, but that he is trying to use his own artwork to work through these things. I, I admire. I don't know much about him, but, uh, you know, I, as I was rewatching the film recently, I just kept thinking about all the similarities between that and Pink Floyd, the wall, which I saw the two for the first time at the same time. It's almost like there can't be a British rock musical that doesn't have a father that was killed in the, the war. And of course, in this case, he wasn't killed. He was just sort of missing for a while. Yeah, I wondered when you said that you watch those two back to back. It's like I was trying to remember what happens to Pink's father. Does he come back or is he dead? <laughs> nah, I think he's he's dead. But there's a lot of the same, you know. That the if I remember, I'd have to go back and rewatch the Wall. But I feel like that that Poppy thing is in both films. So I guess that's like a, a British thing that I, I you know, little American me isn't familiar with. But it, it pops up in these films and must have really meant something. I think it all has to do with Remembrance Day, which is uh, maybe there, and I also get these screwed up because Memorial Day is for one group of people versus Veterans Day is for another group. I think veterans are the ones that are still living, and Memorial Day is for the people who have passed. So it might be related to their um, their Memorial Day, which is they, they call Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day is a day of reflection. It was originally introduced just after the First World War. At that time, it was called Armistice Day, in commemoration of the Armistice on the 11th of November, 1918. Actually, speaking of Tommy's father, um, I feel I'd be remiss if I I didn't point out that it's the great Robert Powell, who I always love seeing pop up in anything. Yeah, that's kind of another thing is like Ken used, would often go back to some of the same actors in his films. Because, you know, I think Robert... 
pal is in Mahler, you know, of course she got Daltrey in Lysomania. Oh, fuck yeah. But you want to talk about some, some amazing batshit beauty right there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I actually wish we could see more of Tommy's dad in this just because it's Robert Powell, who um, I think is a really underrated actor. I would probably, I could actually probably say that I think about like 99% of this cast, though. We're just going to have to go back and watch the ass fix again. Again. Well, it's better than Awakenings. <laughs> Which I haven't seen. I'm sorry, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's no Patch Adams. I have to talk about the return of Uncle Ernie. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> that is possibly one of the my most favorite bits in movie history. Just him on that organ cash register and especially when he's on the the writing it and playing the organ with his feet i never understood does he say you lucky people or does he say you lucky pickle you lucky people what makes the most sense i'm gonna go with pickle Pickle it is (laughs) a mystery solved i thought it was people but i like pickle better so i'm going with that as well and I was wondering if it was different from one soundtrack to the other, too, because I know there's lines that are changed. Obviously, 1921, 1951, but even with, like, here come willing helpers to take you to your very own machine versus... Here comes Uncle Ernie to guide you to your very own machine. So these things change. So maybe it's pickle in one and people in the other. I'll have to investigate. Well, you know if they say a pickle in one hand means a... You got got a pickle in your hand. Because <laughs> as a drummer, what do you think of Keith Moon as a fellow drummer? Uh, I love him. He's he's one of my favorites because he is not. Oh, it's hard to describe. He's he's not caged. He's not uh, controlled. Like he's out of control. And, and I just was always as, as a kid. I thought his drumming was just amazing, especially being able to watch footage of him because it's like. It's so primal. It's unlike any other drummer that, that I'd ever seen or heard. And I can't think of too many other drummers like that. Maybe Rat Scabies from The Damned. And I'm sure uh, uh, I always forget his name, the guy from Jimi Hendrix's band. Yeah, there there really aren't many drummers that play that way. They just sort of like throw out any kind of drum part and just play. I also love the way that he holds his sticks. It just always feels different to me. I tend to think of people with their sticks out, whereas he holds them almost towards his body when he's doing it. I've wondered about that too, if he's just doing that for the camera to play quiet, to play quieter. But I, I don't know. I've never actually researched it, but yeah, I always thought that was pretty interesting. That was the thing about the who that I always really liked was to me, you had three total virtue. Well, take it back four total virtuosos in that band between Townsend's guitar playing, and Whistle's bass, Moon's drum, and Daltrey's tambourine. He was good at that. I thought you were going to go for his fringes. Oh, or his microphone swinging. I do want to give, uh, while we're talking about the who, some mad props to and John and Twistle, who I think is always kind of like, people kind of overlook him, because he's, you know, obviously not the most obviously flashy of the three, because you got three really flashy guys, but Entwistle is the man. And you notice any of the songs in the band that he wrote and sang on are always kind of the weirder songs. I mean, this is the man that gave us Boris the Spider. Come on. Yeah. I love that song. It's, it's so, so good. good. Oh, he had a great song on, uh, I think it's on the Who Are You album. I, I think it's his song about being a clone. It's like, it's the, the, the name of the song is like, 
it's like a number. Hmm. And I, I remember the, the opening line was, mother was an incubator, father was her contents. And I just, I heard that song when that album came out. And man, that that got into my imagination for years. I should probably find a copy of that album and hear it again sometime. God, I need to, I'm going to need to pick it up now. Cause I realize I don't, I don't think we have that one, but, um, weirdly enough. <laughs> Did you guys notice how pale Anne Margaret gets towards the end of the movie? I assume that it was because her character is wearing less and less makeup. Ah, okay. Cause at one point she almost looks like a vampire when she's wearing the green headscarf and the green outfit, which is interesting because those green outfits look uh, very similar to me to the outfits that the, um, the handicapped people were wearing in the Eric Clapton scene. And I was like, I wonder if they're trying to kind of emulate these jumpsuits from one to another. But yeah, she just looks so super pale, but I think you're right. I think it's just that she's not wearing the makeup that she was wearing before. And maybe not getting, uh, you know, sunny beach vacations as much as she had been. And you're right, Heather. The scene of them in the car, and especially when Tommy awakens, that is probably the most sexualized the relationship between those two are. I mean, it gets really kind of uncomfortable watching uh, Daltrey and and Margaret in that scene because they just they seem much more like lovers than mother and son. You know, some of it's the acting. I think, kind of think some of it is just they, I mean, they look like they're around the same age. I mean, they don't they look, yeah. yeah. And so I can't help but wonder, like, if they're that close in age, is it going to, you know what I mean? Like, how much is it intentionally Oedipal? Do you think, you know, some of it, probably a little bit, <laughs> probably a, a wee bit. I don't know. I don't know how much, though. But, you know, and Margaret makes it work. And I'm usually, like, not a fan of, of when films do that, especially with actresses, because it always, you know, you know, and, 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 and much lesser films, it always seems like kind of like a sexist move. Like, say, like, in Forrest Gump, like, Sally Field's only older than Tom Hanks by, like, what? a year <laughs> if she's even older than him oh but, oh but we'll have her play his mom you know because she's not hot anymore according to hollywood standards but thank god this isn't forrest gump i don't think i'd be here talking about it. no no, no. i just looked it up they are approximately three years apart in age there you go that, yeah. um, god they would have had some beautiful babies though jesus can you imagine those jeans coming together Oh my god, that would have been like if I always thought if Grace Jones and Dolph Lundgren had had kids, like that would oh, be. Oh wow! Yeah, like I didn't know babies could have six packs. You know, that's probably what would have happened. The whole idea of the we're not going to take it. Like I've always been confused about the end of this film because it feels like the we're not going to take it starts a little early versus him doing the whole welcome to the camp thing because it feels like they're the the people are disenchanted. Then he welcomes them to the camp, has them play pinball, and then they get mad again. And I'm just like, I would think that you would save all the mad until they start playing pinball. And they're just like, this doesn't work. You are fucking crazy. But they already seem mad when they're coming in and wearing those, like, where's Waldo hats and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's like the bikers that come in and sort of start all the, all the trouble, isn't it? Yeah, and the bikers are already disillusioned because of Uncle Ernie selling them all these different Tommy things, which I always find a very ironic that they're almost making fun of merchandising, but then they're a rock band, so they probably make a ton of money from merchandising. <laughs> and I'm looking at all these things like 
adultery with all the pinballs around him doing this very Jesus pose. And I'm just like, I'd really like one of those. That looks really cool. Oh, God. I can't believe I didn't mention that you have the Tommy wallpaper in Sally's room. Oh, God. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, it's just all these, you know, and of course, these images of, of Tommy looking like there's that one, like he looks like a beautific Christ, like the one that's in silver and black. God, that set, that set towards the end where it's like you have these giants, they almost look like giant silver bombs. Or I don't know, why would you even describe those? Because there's like handles on them. So they're not really pinballs, but pinball-esque, I guess. Just the, I mean, I was like, God, how, what was the construction like of that? Because it looks like it goes on for like a mile. No, it looks fantastic. And yeah, where are you going to find this? Or are you bringing this thing, these things in? I mean, again, apocryphal, but Russell was just like, oh yeah, we found that place. And then we painted all the balls. And I was like, how fucking lucky were you to find this place with all those whatever they are? Because you're right. I don't, I mean, do you hang those from a crane and smash buildings? What are these things? It's one of those things, like, especially rewatching this recently, it just hit me like, what a special period of time all of this was because I can't really imagine a band that would be equivalent to the who as far as stature now releasing a rock opera like Tommy I can't imagine having a band actually that's current like the who and and nor can I imagine a movie like this being made you know I don't think any anybody with money would take a chance on something like this now no if you're gonna make like they made that daft punk movie a few years ago and it's just like really low budget, you know, like looks good, but it's not this. This is so lavish. I mean, you just talked about the production design. I've talked about the costumes. I mean, just everything all coming together. These A-list actors that are in this, you don't get that in any of these other rock operas unless they're maybe going to do American Idiot, the Green Day one, but... I don't know. I've never even heard that album, so it's not like they're bringing us together like The Who was. No, it's just, it's really just like a a moment in time. I mean, because think about it, like the 70s, there were so many like rock musicals too. Like, it wasn't just that we had Tommy. It's like, you've got Tommy, you have Fan of the Paradise, you have, you know, Godspell, you have Jesus Christ Superstar, and Rocky Horror, and yes, Sgt. Pepper's Never forget, people. Never forget the dangers of too much cocaine use. <laughs> <laughs> Such a crazy time, you know. It's like, because now it's like a musical may come out, but to have so many in the span of 10 years, uh, especially specifically being a rock musical, just seems very special. And I loved how they kind of sent this up with the next one, with, with Listomania, and this whole idea of like Franz Liszt being this rock star and just having him played by Daltrey and just going out with that. And, and even having, I think, Little Nell was in that. And it might have been right around the same year that she was in uh, Rocky Horror. So, it, yeah, I, it's been a long time since I've seen Listomania, but I remember loving it. And I remember it just being as batshit crazy as this movie. For sure. She was also in The Wall. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, she was one of the groupies. I always call it the dirty woman sequence. I don't think that's what it's called. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about when you call it that. Though, so. Oh, see? See? And, and Skiz, I'm so jealous you got to see that double feature. That is awesome. Yeah, and then, it's, you know, it's two movies I'd wanted to see for a while, too. And 
getting to see them both back to back at the coolest theater in town, which I had just started going to. So very, very fond memory. I cry a little bit when I see all these pinball machines being smashed. Um, <laughs> I'm a, I, I love playing pinball. It's not something that I do on a regular basis, but when I have the opportunity and just the craftsmanship of a good pinball machine is just a wonderful thing. And so seeing these things smashed apart, it's just like, oh man, because especially to see the beautiful um, artwork and the glass and just to see all the lights that are behind it, it's just like, oh, this is a real shame. But I mean, it happens, but it, it still makes me sad. Watching it now, I mean, they all look like antique pinball machines, which they probably weren't, weren't at the time, but you see it, you are know, like, oh man, these should all be in a museum. That belongs in a museum! Oh god, I feel like it all goes back to Ferrari seat of man. <laughs> <laughs> Another Christ image is the fish, the whole idea of the Christ symbol, and you're kind of right, Tommy's almost like a fucking salmon returning, <laughs> going up river to spawn. <laughs> going back to that beginning shot and it's one of the the best end shots in in movies for me is him standing up there and i know it's a process shot i know it's not like thx 1138 where they actually filmed the sunrise and timed it all but just him there with the arms up and the the huge sun and the triumphant music and oh it just it works for me every single time and just the way that these songs build and build and build I mean, that's one of the things that, of all the things we've talked about is just like how fucking good the music is because these themes, these songs, I mean, uh, I, I get this stuff. The one danger of watching this movie is now I have these songs stuck in my head and they'll probably be there for the next probably two, three months. And I'll just be, you know, getting up in the morning and singing. There's a doctor in town and okay, great. You know, this morning I was singing, uh, you know, I think 51 is going to be a good year. And my wife's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got a few road trips coming up and I'm looking forward to taking the opportunity to actually re-listen to the, the original album, because I haven't heard it in years, but I've been wanting to hear it ever since I rewatched the film. Well, you better not count on listening to that when we go to Chicago, because there's no who allowed in my car. We'll see. You don't have to put up with that skiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll bring something else. Aww. <laughs> no. You should bring the soundtrack to Awakenings. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First, you'll hear from Kit Power, author of the Midnight Movie Monograph for Tommy. Following that, we'll hear from the one and only god of Hellfire, Arthur Brown. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. Demanding join the banquet at her commanding Eat no fat and eat no lean Eat Rex beans fit for a queen Eat no fat and eat no lean Eat Rex beans fit for a What's the tea, darling? 
darling. I said, what's the tea? What's the tea, daughter? Why Tommy? How did Tommy end up on your CV? Because it just seems so out of left field. I mean, you're right, fiction and this, this, you know, horror of varying lengths from from novel to short story length. But I mean, the way Tommy came about was so one of my side gigs, I guess, promotional gigs really as part of the writing is I write for a website called Ginger Nuts of Horror, which is the UK's kind of, well, it's probably Europe's biggest independent horror review site. Uh, and it's run by this guy in Scotland called Jim McLeod, who's this wonderful kind of bundle of enthusiasm for the entire genre. But a f- few years ago now, four years ago, he he realized he couldn't manage the site on its own. It had gotten to the point where it was growing too fast and there was there were too many books to read, not enough hours in the day. So he reached out to a few people and I'd recently done a, a guest post for him. It was one of the first bits of writing I did once I knew I was going to be doing this seriously to try and you know promote a novel I, was, I had out at the time and he enjoyed what I'd written enough I think I'd written about Stephen King's It that's my memory and he'd enjoyed it enough that he said well do you want to do you want to come on staff as it were have you got a thing you'd like to do on a regular basis so we we kicked a few ideas back and forth and what we ended up with was a, a monthly column called My Life in Horror where I write about the things that influenced me as a child when I first envisaged it, I thought it was mainly going to be kind of 80s horror movies. You know, I envisaged I would be writing about the, the Elm Street movies, which I watched young, and Hellraiser and things like that. And I, I've done a few of those. But as the column developed, what I realized was there were a lot of influences on me that went way beyond what you might consider traditional horror. So one of the early pieces I wrote was about the Wasp album, The Headless Children, because I heard that when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, and it had a massive impact on me. And although it's not ostensibly horror genre, there's, there's some sort of horrific imagery in it and other things that are more horrifying when you listen to it with adult ears, but that's, <laughs> that's maybe a slightly separate issue. And then one of the things that I knew I was always going to write about was Tommy because I watched it at the age of seven and it, I hesitate to use the word traumatized because I'm aware that there are people out there suffering from real trauma, but it did a number on me. Let's put it like that. I mean, it really, really hit me very hard indeed. I couldn't finish watching it. It was one of the few times in my life I asked someone to turn the telly off. I knew that I was going to have to write about that experience for my life in horror. So that's that's where it started. And then Neil Snowden, the man who edits the book series that Tommy's been published by, the Midnight Movie Monographs, he read that and, and heard me on a podcast talking about Tommy and got in touch and said, do you want to write a book, basically? And, and the answer was, of course, yes, because I realized writing that short essay that I wrote for Ginger, it's maybe 3,000 words, and it's, the, it's actually the first chapter of the book, the introduction, is pretty much that column. I realized like there's, there is definitely a book worth of commentary in this movie. This is the first time you've written a full-length book about a film. How did you go about doing your research and just kind of planning it out? The really handy thing about having Tommy as a template to write about is that it's got uh, there's a natural structure to it because it's made up of songs. It's an opera, not a musical, so there's no spoken word at all. The entire thing is a collection of songs, a sequence of songs, obviously not a collection. That immediately provided me with a suggested kind of template. And it's roughly 30 songs, 30 chapters. I had to write 30,000 words. So, okay, 1,000 words a chapter, 1,000 words per song as a benchmark, you know, as a starting point. Now I can do that. And then it was just a question of lining up the songs with the subject matter. So I listed, you know, I had a Word document with a list of the songs, a list of things I wanted to write about. And it's like, so what fits where? So I thought, well, okay, we've got extra, extra, so I can write about 
Russell and the press, because that's going to need a, a short bit of attention in the book. And I can, you know, and, and various bits. And so I could start seeing how some of it would map to the scenes in the film, but some of it would give me the opportunity to range you know, far and wide and talk about other things that were going on kind of in the culture, in the ether or other things the artists were involved in. So that, that's how I started. By the end of it, I had the song titles matched up to, to essay subjects. I initially thought that this would save me time because what I could do is write it a bit at a time as I did the research, right? It was a way of trying to, didn't work at all because what I realized was the research was influencing the writing and also the earlier chapters ended up influencing the later chapters. So as I discovered things on the page, which is how I write, I'm a very intuitive writer. As I discovered things on the page, they had implications for later chapters. So I, I realized at a certain point, no, you're going to have to go away and do all your research before you can really write much of this book at all. So it didn't end up saving me any time <laughs> whatsoever. But it was nice to have a plan because I never normally have a plan. So that was, that was fun. It was a novel, at least, for me. When you write a novel... What is your typical method? Do you have the ending already in mind, or you just start at the beginning and let it take you someplace? I mean, so far I've only written one novel, so I guess that's an important caveat. I've, I'm, I'm near as damn it finished my second. I'm just, it should be finished in the next couple of months or the next couple of weeks, in fact. But with the one I've written so far, funnily enough, I did have the end in mind. I had the beginning and the end, but that's all I had. I knew I knew what the closing image of the novel was going to be, and I and I got there, and it, and it ended where I expected it was going to, and I had the the beginning situation. But how I got from from A to Z was just to write it. I didn't have any plan beyond that. Tell me about some of the research that you did on Tommy, because it is super clever the way that you have it set up, and I especially love the personal stuff, which I know you don't necessarily have to research because that's you. But I just love the way that you have this all put together, and yeah, the way that the chapters and the songs will speak to one another. In terms of mechanically, what I did for the research was I just read a bunch. So I read Townsend's autobiography. Unfortunately, Daltrey's wasn't out when I was writing the book, so I didn't get a chance to read that. But I watched interviews he'd done on YouTube and, and Townsend, and and then I watched, the, obviously, the, the commentary track, the DVD with the commentary track on. So I got to look. And that's great because the commentary track is uh, Russell being interviewed by Mark Commode, who's a massive fan. So it's a lovely conversation. Almost like the book, they kind of touch on the film periodically, but they find themselves spinning off in all kinds of interesting directions. So that, that makes for a, a really good commentary track. I read Russell's uh, autobiography, which is wonderful, uh, a wonderful piece of writing, but not very helpful in terms of research because it's not written chronologically. He just jumps about all over in his timeline, which means that if, if you're only reading it because you want to find out what his mindset was in 1970 or 1964 or whatever it is, then it doesn't really help you because it doesn't give dates. So you just have to guess. But it was really good for getting a sense of the man. Uh, and it's a superb piece of writing. So I, I read all of that stuff. And I read – I had a book on, on Russell's films by um, – I can't remember the name of the writer, but it was a very academic text. And I read that up to the Tommy entry and then stopped because I was very conscious that I didn't want to read another critic's view of Tommy uh, before I wrote my own thoughts, especially because this guy was really good and really bright. So what I did was I, uh, I read that up to Tommy. So I got a sense of Russell's career to that point. And that helped me then kind of get, because what I really wanted to do was all of this research was really just to write those two chapters about Townsend and Russell uh, as they came to make the film. That's all I really wanted to do. But I had to do all this research just so I could get the mindset of where they both were in their careers and what they were both thinking about. When the film came out, how was it received? 
very mixed uh, as as is kind of as kind of behooves uh, Russell. I mean, Russell's a really divisive filmmaker. You know, uh, he really divides opinion. People, he has obviously his his. I mean, I was going to say fans, almost acolytes. There are people who who absolutely adore what he does, um, and and there were many critics who detested everything he did, and Tommy certainly included. It, I mean, it made amazing box office, which I hadn't realised it was an absolute smash hit, and it was a smash hit for months. I think that a lot of the Easy Rider generation were getting one last hurrah out of Tommy. You know, I think a lot of them were kind of. <laughs> you know dropping acid or smoking weed before they went into the cinema and of course it was you know the it was one of the very very first movies if not the first to use uh what we now call surround sound you know it had the the 4.1 sound which at the, at the time was revolutionary i'm sure that that added to the kind of amazing impact of going to see the cinema in modern terms you know in a kind of rotten tomato sense it probably would have had a higher audience rating than critic rating but it did have its fans um even amongst the critics so it was it was interestingly received yeah, a real, real kind of range of, of opinion. I was really glad that you brought in uh, Russell's conversion to Catholicism and just how that plays with the whole idea of this Messiah theme that Tommy has uh, just running throughout the entire thing, just all of the religious symbols that uh, it plays with. I don't think the book would have been possible to write without engaging with that at some point, because as you say, it's so it's so integral to the story. And of course, it's one of the things, it's one of the key things that Russell brings to the story that's kind of not there in the original. Townsend's influences were much more based on the kind of Eastern religion stuff that he'd been absorbing at the time and the, the guru he was following at the time. Um, he'd very much seen it in those terms. So yeah, all the kind of Christian imagery certainly comes from Russell. I mean, one of the things that I, I, I found out about in the research, but I was never able to track down the details on, he was kicking a script around for a long time called The Angels, which was meant to be a, a kind of at least a spiritual sequel to The Devils and could not get it made for love nor money. The impression that I get from what he's, you know, what he said in various interviews is, is that some of some of what was going to go into the angels ended up in Tommy. So that's really intriguing as well. And obviously that must be imagery because in terms of the script, the script is the songs and the songs are, are all from Townsend. So the ideas that came through from that, from from the angels must have been the at least some of the religious iconography but yeah it's incredibly powerful and it's a really powerful part of the film and i think for me one of the things that i i mean i, I kind of became slightly obsessed by still am really is the way that the the religious imagery interacts with world war Two and the, the the notion of the fallen of world war Two. and there's something really i mean from my personal perspective something very uncomfortable about that as a juxtaposition something really kind of almost sacrilegious maybe but really fascinating and that's a core component of the imagery that russell throws at you throughout the film well not being british myself it was very interesting to hear about some of the things like the the whole idea of the poppies i had no idea what that was as a symbol of the of the war dead remembrance day i mean it's it's gotten to the point now where it's almost uh, it's so homogenous that everyone does it that it's almost become it almost feels to some people it almost feels slightly oppressive there's been an interesting movement in the last decade or so of people wearing white poppies to symbolize representation of the especially in world war one the pacifists the soldiers who refused to fight some of whom were imprisoned or even you know shot for cowardice if they were on the front line so there's been a kind of move there's there's a very interesting feeling you know that kind of I think argument really I'd have to describe it as between you know the the traditional red poppy which is meant to represent the fallen and that's really all it's meant to represent but for some people it's starting to represent almost a kind of imperialism and they'd rather 
memorialize the dead in a different way so it's a very it's still an incredibly potent symbol and when you get to kind of remembrance day in november of this country you just see poppies absolutely everywhere everyone's wearing them um i mean we have you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I realised as part of the research of the film, the things that you see every day, you don't even realise. Most of our, almost every church in this country, I would say, has a memorial to the war dead, the the, the, the fallen of World War One and World War Two, and they're normally a combined memorial. And and again, on Remembrance Day, there'll be a wreath of poppies that's been laid there by by you know some group or another. So yeah, it's it's ubiquitous. And as I say, the absolutely fascinating how Russell marries that with this explicitly religious iconography in a really queasy uncomfortable way who came up with the idea of moving it from world war one to world war two that was russell because in the original musical it was uh, 21 became 51 so that the the year is transposed from the end of world war one to the end of world war two and that was definitely russell's idea that was definitely something that he brought to because he wanted to ground it more in that generation and in doing so i think it was a very smart move because what it meant was the film was talking directly to to townsend generation to the generation that grew up in the shadow of the war and tommy one of the things that the movie tommy clearly represents is that post-war immediate post-war generation the boomers i guess we have to call them who are living in the shadow of this incredible monstrous force that has demolished their entire um i mean literally demolished large sections of the towns and cities that they're growing up in right they're growing up in the rubble of london the rubble of liverpool the rubble of all of these cities and they see the devastating effects of it both around them and in their family units where they you know their fathers have come home with if they've come home at all with injuries whether they're physical or psychological um and you know their mothers have had to endure all kinds of stuff as well and then and and typically because they're British, no one's talking about it. So it must have, I mean, the way I imagine it is it must have felt like there was this kind of giant monster just rampaged through their lives and then gone before they'd, before they'd been born. So, that, you know, it, I think a lot of what I love about The Who's music is it feels to me to be an attempt to wrestle with that feeling of, you know, you're surrounded by this, you know, the most defining thing in your culture is something that happened immediately before you were born. You have no control over it. You have no say in it. You have no power over it. And yet it exerts this incredible force. It was Russell's decision to, to ground the film there, but it made such a huge impact on the way that the narrative plays out uh, for what were then obviously modern audiences. Well, I'm sure it also helped to make the film a lot cheaper because you're dealing with contemporary time instead of having to make this a period piece. Yeah, that's true. And even where the the early parts that are set in World War Two, it's it's easier to do period World War Two than World War One for similar reasons. It's still cheaper. So yes, I think that's that's probably a good shout. And as you say, it means that when uh, when Tommy grows up, he's effectively modern day or very close to it when it was shot. So you know, seventies. Yeah. What was Russell's relationship like with the Who once he started to uh, make the film? It's worth remembering that Russell was not a fan of uh, of any kind of popular music whatsoever. Russell was a classical music fanatic. He, uh, he he credited classical music with saving his life and saving his sanity when he got back from the navy, and he was in a in a very bad way. And it was, I mean, he was, you know, I don't know how we diagnose it today, depressed, pros- you know, or something like that. He had some kind of severe kind of. Uh, mental issues he was stuff- suffering with, and he he credits classical music with bringing him out of it. It's interesting that the way that he was sold on making the film was that they they got him tickets to go and see an orchestral performance of Tommy. I believe you can still get the recording of that that performance as well because it was the the Royal London Philharmonic who who did it, and there's a there's a vinyl pressing of that which I have and I've listened to as part of the research. And uh, so so they found a way in in terms of 
you know, marrying um, obviously the Who's music with this uh, with a sensibility that they knew Russell might respond to. And then he and Townsend spent some time together. Uh, I mean, playing each other music, actually. Uh, what happened was Russell played Townsend classical music to try and you know, convince him of the power of it. And what, what Townsend was doing was showing, here's how I can orchestrate with synths. Um, at the time that the original Tommy album came out, synthesized music was absolutely in its infancy. And Townsend was a pioneer in that regard. Um, by the time it came to make the movie, he'd made, he was just finishing recording Quadrophenia, which used synths in again, for the, for the time, absolutely groundbreaking ways, but he was starting to use synthesizers to actually orchestrate the music. And what he was saying to Russell as he was playing and that stuff was like, look, I can do this. I can give this, uh, orchestral feel using synthesizers backing up the who, and we can make this work. So the way the movie was made was that, that they recorded, everything almost everything in the studio before before they filmed a single frame which i still find an absolutely staggering fact because bear in mind russell as a filmmaker never storyboarded so russell knew what he wanted the film to look like and therefore what he wanted to get from the vocal performances and got them all to record knowing what it was going to look like on film which i just i just find staggering when you think about the precision of what's happening in some of those vocals. It's really an astonishing feat that it's really an incredible act of imagination, but they work very closely together. They work very well together. It seems there was a huge amount of mutual respect between uh, Townsend uh, and Russell and also Daltrey uh, and Russell. Obviously this was, this was Daltrey's first, first film role, first acting gig. And it's like no pressure. You know, you've got Ken Russell who at that point, you know, his reputation is still riding high as this kind of enfant tour, you know, this kind of real uh, lunatic filmmaker, this real dangerous guy and famously not a big director of actors either. You know, that's something that even the people who enjoyed working with him, even people like, you know, Oliver Reed and people like that would say, like, yeah, he's not a, you know, you just kind of get on with it. <laughs> you know, he expects you to know what you're doing kind of thing. So uh, quite an astonishing thing for, for Daltrey to have to do. But he, he approached it with respect. Uh, and I think he, you know, and, and he had been playing Tommy on stage for a number of years. And I think that helped. The other the interesting thing about that is Moon, of course, who has a huge reputation as this absolute lunatic. And, and there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of evidence to support that. I don't think it was, I mean, it, I was going to say, I don't think it was an act. If it was an act, it was an assiduously cultivated act. Let's put it like that. Uh, and one with a lot of basis in truth. But um, when it came to make Tommy, uh, he took it very seriously indeed to Keith Moon. He, he was at that point, he was living in, in California, he was living in Hollywood and he was, he was thinking about pivoting to a film career. So he recognized this was a massive opportunity and, you know, he turned up to set ready to work and he, he asked Russell questions about how he wanted the performance to be done. Um, and when he was on camera, when he was on set, he acted, you know, with, with a real kind of professionalism and everyone, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Everyone in the movie career, corroborates that everyone involved talks about that you know pete talks about it um russell's talked about it in interviews so i don't think it's uh i don't think it's a question of not speaking ill of the dead or anything like that it was it was a real thing although of course he and he and oliver reed did also spend some some quality time together when they weren't filming which i understand got fairly legendary as you might expect so that means that russell's there probably townsend as well directing the performances in the recording studio rather than necessarily on set uh initially yeah, it must have been that way. That's right. So they were using the same studio that, as I say, the, the Who had just recorded Quadrophenia. Um, and it was a really tough period for Townsend, too, because he just, he'd recorded Quadrophenia to replace Tommy in the live set. That was the idea. They'd been playing Tommy live for, you know, seven or eight years now. And it was, it was, 
I mean, it was a, it was the golden goose, but it was also feeling more and more like a creative millstone for Townsend. And he'd really thought Quadrophenia was going to snap him back out of it and give him, give him something else to do. And then, you know, literally the, the week after he's finished recording Quadrophenia, he's back in his studio recording Tommy again, you know, recording the, uh, the movie version with all these new songs he's had to write because, because Russell's kind of had some ideas about the early part of the story and he needs these, these new bits writing as a result. They will have been directing the studio. And the other thing that's about that is they didn't have a lot of time um, with the recording. So I think Anne Margaret recorded all of her singing parts in two days, which is just when you think again about the sheer range of her performance, that's absolutely extraordinary. Nicholson, they had for one day. So they recorded him in the morning and filmed him in the afternoon. Nicholson was on his way to the Cannes Film Festival. He was going to, I think he was picking up the Palm d'Or for Chinatown or he was, you know, in the contention for that. Um, so he had a day stopover in, uh, in the UK and they recorded Nicholson and filmed him in the, in that afternoon. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was really extraordinary, really high pressure environment. And, uh, um, as I say, I mean, Russell must have known exactly what he wanted. And uh, the story is that Reed was the nightmare because he really couldn't sing at all. So they, they'd have to record and they would, they were literally recording it a line at a time, sometimes a word at a time to get that performance out of him because he had no kind of natural, uh, sense of, I mean, he's kind of had the opposite of perfect pitch, I guess. So they just had to literally train him sort of you know, yeah, line by line to get it done, which is quite sounds quite excruciating. But I mean, they, you know, they got what they got in the end. It worked, I think. Well, then to have them reenact that on set and lip sync to themselves must have just been such a strange experience, especially for somebody like Reed. I mean, and Margaret had been doing it for decades at that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, Anne Margaret was, was, you know, dancing with Elvis in Viva Las Vegas, right? She's, she's been, it's, it's, you know, came by this point in her career completely naturally to her. Um, I mean, the interesting story with Reed is that he didn't struggle with it on set. The, the story is that once he'd, uh, once he'd recorded it, once he'd actually got it correct, it stayed in and he was locked in from then on. So actually there weren't too many problems with that. Um, it must have been quite something because the things for me, it's the detail stuff where you hear Anne Margaret singing, do you think it's all right? And the line is all blurred because she's, she's doing a lipstick at the same time. You know, it's, it's moments like that. And you think that, you know, as I say, almost all of that was pre-recorded, and it's just astonishing that, that Russell had that level of, of engagement with the material in his head as they were in the studio. I find that just, uh, just mind blowing really. Yeah. There's not a lot of, bad audio edits when it comes to the movie it feels like he did have everything so planned out there are only a couple times towards the end where it's like okay it felt like maybe there should have been a little bit more of the song there but for the most part it just flows so smoothly oh it's incredibly impressive and it's also i think testament to the songwriting as well that it that it just flows as a as a continual because it is actually a continual piece of music there's almost no point, I don't think, where there's there's silence on the track. It's the whole thing just flows one song to the other. And it never feels discordant. It never feels out of sync or out of time. It's it's really, really astonishing. And that's just uh yeah, I think that's that's testament to to Townsend's genius as a as a composer, really. And I do, you know, I do describe I, I use the word composer as opposed to songwriter, because I think that it when you look at something with the scale and scope of Tommy, I think that that's actually the right word to use. We talked about how Russell influenced Tommy, the musical, for the movie. Was there any sort of pushback or, or um, boomerang effect to how The Who performed Tommy afterwards? The immediate thing to say is, obviously, as I say, they were trying to 
they were trying to get Quadrophenia to stick. So <laughs> the immediate tour that they did was touring Quadrophenia, but that was kind of a disaster because uh, for some reason uh, Moon was having difficulty with the um, with playing to the the pre-recorded synth tracks. He'd been all right with the stuff they did for Who's Next, but for some reason the stuff in Quadrophenia, it was more complex, and I think it started to throw him a little bit. Also, I think he was starting to run into some of his more serious kind of drug problems, which probably wasn't helping matters. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know the degree to which it affected to- their, their performance performance of tommy they did a version of they did it very recently they did a tour either last year or the year before i think it was yeah i think it was 2018 and they've done a dvd release of that which i watched and it's it's very faithful to the uh, album recording they really didn't get influenced as far as i can tell by the movie particularly yeah that feels very much almost like a, a reclamation I mean, Townsend's relationship with Tommy is so interesting. You really do feel like there's this there's this push-pull between uh, clearly an enormous sense of pride, I, I think rightly, in the achievement that Tommy represents, but also you do sometimes sense just a little bit of melancholy that that's the, the only thing or the main thing that he's being remembered for, because I think he would like to feel that he achieved more as a songwriter than just that one you know, incredible album and movie and, and live show. So it's something that live kind of has come and gone. And increasingly what they've done, especially now they're in their kind of, you know, they're, they're almost their own tribute act at this point, as most bands that age kind of become, you know, it's interesting that what they've decided to do is do a Tommy tour and a Quadrophenia tour and then a regular tour where they just play their own stuff. It's almost like they're kind of trying to segregate it out as its own thing there's not a great sense of influence the only other thing is the imagery so i was watching the hyde park gig they did in 2017 that was actually one of the things i watched uh for research because they, they did a bunch of interviews in, in between the, the live tracks on that and there are although it's it doesn't use imagery direct from the film you see a lot of the pinball imagery and a lot of the computer graphics stuff it, it certainly invokes the movie in interesting ways when they do tracks like pinball wizard um so i think there is a, there is a bit of a visual influence there maybe but as i say i mean townsend's interesting he's very I mean, he's very protective of Tommy in a way. It's interesting how when they went to do the stage version, he 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 referred it back to World War One, and he changed um, he changed the situation so Uncle Frank wasn't in it anymore. Because that's the single biggest change that Russell made is that Russell introduced uh, the idea that it was the lover that murdered the returning father, whereas in the original rock opera, it's the father and mother who kill the lover. So Uncle Frank is an entire creation of Russell. And it's really hard to imagine the narrative of that story without him once you've seen the film. And yet that is the case. The original version of Tommy doesn't engage with Uncle Frank at all. He's murdered, you know, very early on in the story. I like how you talked about in the book as well, the relationship of Townsend and Tommy as being, you know, one of um, Tommy being a cipher for Townsend. What's great about that, from my perspective is like that was one of the things I discovered on the page. So that's exactly why I had to do all the research before I started writing because it's, it's moments like that that are the payoff for having written it in that way and writing it as I went along. You know, I wrote it in the order that you read it. And one of the payoffs for that is I had moments like that and it really was, that was a discovery on the page. And I think if I remember rightly, it comes quite late in the book. And, and what, what triggered the revelation was I was dealing with the notion of Tommy once he's recovered. And I was trying to understand why it was that Tommy would invite uh, Uncle Frank and Uncle Ernie 
back into the fold because they become they become part of the religious cult and uncle ernie's there you know ushering people into the to the to the holiday camp at the end of the movie with this, in this you know with the giant organ on the back of the truck and the, the dancing and it's just i mean moon just living it up man just having a, a whale of a time and it's a wonderful performance it's incredibly creepy and a great bit of russell imagery as well the the cash register numbers that come up on the organ as he plays the chords and stuff I mean, and this was happening on the page as I was writing. I was trying to make sense of it. How does Tommy, how does Tommy bring these people back into his life if he has any memory at all of the way they treated him? I mean, there'd be no reason at all to do it. Not even necessarily out of malice. Even if he forgives them personally, how could he expose his own followers to that kind of thing? So, okay, he can't know because if he knew about it, he wouldn't do it. And that's what triggered remembering reading Townsend's autobiography and his own history of of his own belief that he was abused as a child but he has no memory of it that it's been you know he has these these hints of memory but he believes that he has this repressed kind of event that happened to him or or thing that happened to him as a kid and that was the moment on the page when i made that connection tommy doesn't know townsend didn't know okay so tommy is a townsend insert i mean that's what's going on there moments like that are why i do what i do it's it's a, it's such a pleasure and it's really interesting because obviously mainly what i write is fiction but to discover that you can have that kind of a moment writing a non-fiction book was uh, a real thrill actually <laughs> it was really exciting and it makes sense of so much of the rest of the movie once you have that and look i'm probably not the first person to have realized this okay i realized that as well this is you know whatever but but it does make so much more sense of the rest of the film when you when you see it that way and then of course it's complicated by the fact that that's that's certainly what townsend's intent was with the source material but russell will have complicated that massively in any number of ways by the you know by keeping uncle frank in the narrative by introducing the religious imagery by making it explicitly World War Two, all of that then complicates that relatively simple vision of, of Townsend as Tommy and makes it this really interesting, almost like a mosaic, you know, made up of, of, of bits from different places. It's been pieced together, a collage maybe, that creates a new thing. And I think that's the interesting thing about Tommy the movie is that it is, uh, I mean, I love the original album. I love the, the Who Live at Leeds recording of Tommy. I think that's a phenomenal piece of work. But the movie is its own thing. And it's... Uh, you know, it's both an incredible piece of filmmaking and an absolutely astonishing piece of music. And also, I think, more than the sum of its parts, which means it's something very special indeed. But I would say that that's why I wrote a book about it. Surprisingly, no Cousin Kevin working for Tommy. Cousin Kevin's coded as a rocker. And I think you can you can abuse the guy, you can beat him up, you can steal his money. But if you're a rocker, you're probably not coming to mod heaven. There are limits, you know, there are lines in the sand. <laughs> and the, the Mods Rocker line is, is, is a pretty serious one. Which, again, here in America, no idea. Like, seeing these guys, the first time I saw the movie and seeing these guys with the slick back hair and, you know, all the, I guess what you would call them, teddy boys. It's just the like... teddy boys, yeah. yeah. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, why is, why is there an army of Elvis impersonators? What is going on? Yeah, no, it's a really... I mean, that's it's such an odd cultural thing, too, now, because that was such a small... I mean, that was a... I'm trying to think. I mean, the teddies, the teddies lasted, I guess, to, like, the maybe the sort of... No, they, they just about made it to the 80s, because the teddies and the, and the punks used to fight a lot. Um, and the punks, in a lot of the ways saw themselves as the spiritual successors to the mods um so the teddy boys did last yeah they lasted a good sort of 20 years as a counterculture but it's interesting to me how um when we look back um mod culture still looks iconic punk culture still looks iconic teddy boys just look odd 
You know, it's it's and that's fascinating to me. I don't know. I, I I'd love to know what it was, what it is about a youth movement that that lets it survive in the imagination and what doesn't. You know, like why why is it that the Teddy Boys is something that we look back on and just kind of like you know laugh nervously and change the subject whereas we look back on the mods or the punks and we think like wow that still looks cool you know that still looks exciting i don't know i don't know what it is but yeah it's it's hilarious the uh and, and of course when the 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 rock star fantasy that all the teddy boys get converted to to mods by tommy flying past on his hand you know <laughs> and the and the biker gang as well right the you know it's just astonishing yeah yeah, I, I can't imagine poor Roger Daltrey. Not only is he having to sing and act his first time, but also probably his first time on a hang glider. Yeah, it absolutely was. He got, I think he got like, I don't know, like a day or two days training or something on the hang glider. And that was it. He was off. Um, he did almost all his own stunts as well. The only one that um, there's some question mark about. It's really, this is fascinating, actually. I never got to the bottom of this. So there's, there's, a, there's a stunt where he's on a hang glider at the top of a church tower. And he jumps off on the hang glider, and he and he swoops he swoops out over the over the over the crowd and off into the air. And um, Roger Daltrey said in interviews that he didn't do that stunt because they wouldn't let him. It was, that was considered too dangerous for somebody who just learned to hang gliding. So that was a stunt. But interestingly, Russell says that he did do it. So I'd lean towards Roger tell, having the the truth of that, just because I think that he's a, Roger Daltrey doesn't strike me as a kind of man who'd be shy about admitting it if he had done it. You know, I don't think. You know what I mean? I just, and I don't mean that in a in a disrespectful way. I just mean he kind of he's pr- he's rightly proud of his achievements. And I think if he had done it, he'd have said so. So I suspect that was Russell trying to big him up a bit, maybe, and, and preserve the mystique. But yeah, Townsend did a ton of his. I mean, his first day on set was cousin Kevin. His first day on set was being you know dunked in a bath and hung off a towel rail and whipped and ironed. And then day two was the the fire hose, you know. <laughs> Which was a real fire hose with Ken Russell on the other end of it, like hosing down his stuff. <laughs> Talk about trial by fire, man. He was, uh, yeah, and as you say, the hang gliding, sitting on the roof of the building, all of that stuff, and they're climbing up the rocks at the end as well. There's a there's a lovely story about Russell. It was one of the few moments where Roger was like, "I'm actually not sure I can do this, Ken. That looks kind of dangerous." And Russell was, like, "I'll show you how to do it." And he clambered up, you know, all the life and grace of this, you know, dancer that that Ken was for you know, his first sort of 20 odd years of his life. So of course he, he scampers up this hill with no problem, stands at the top with his hands on his hips. And then Roger's like, shit, well, I got to do it now. <laughs> it seems like they must've gotten on what with Listomania being their next movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, they formed a, a really deep connection and Ken uh, right up to the end, he would talk fondly, very fondly of, of Roger. I think they, I mean, I think they were friends actually. I think they became friends in the making of the film. And yeah, there's there's a lot of I was I was talking to uh, I've been really lucky to be able to talk to Lisa Tribble, who's uh, you know Ken Russell's widow. Yeah, she told me that they they were still in touch. You know, they were still in touch right to the end, and they they were regularly in contact with each other. It was a it was a lifelong friendship they formed on that movie. So we're talking a little bit about that boomerang effect when it comes to the Who and Tommy, and I do love that. You know, basically, Elton John begins to own Pinball Wizard after the movie's out. And also uh, Tina Turner with the Acid Queen. And that's something I, I didn't know until I researched it. But she that made it into a live set um, after the movie came out. And it was there right up to, you know, um, her kind of farewell tour. She was doing Acid Queen as part of the set. Yeah. I mean, those performances are incredible, aren't they, on the soundtrack? Those those stars coming in. I, I love the um, I love Clapton's performance on that as well. Um, as the preacher, I think it's a great. I mean, obviously, the guitar playing is great. It's Eric Clapton. I actually think it's a really good vocal. 
And Clapton's one of those people for me, like, I mean, like Hendrix, I think he gets underrated for his vocals because everyone's focused on this kind of otherworldly guitar playing. But actually, both of them, in their own different ways, really good blues singers. And I, I love Clapton's vocal on that. I think he does a great job. And yeah, Elton John, man. I mean, part of his fee was keeping the boots. That's a fairly famous story. Like, he, that was part of his fee. And uh, the other story that's crazy about that is apparently they, they originally wanted um, Stevie Wonder to play that part. Um, which I can't, I had struggled to imagine. I've not been, again, I wasn't able to get to the bottom of it, but there was some kind of miscommunication about what Tommy was about and it didn't go over very well with, uh, with Stevie Wonder or Stevie Wonder's people. So it didn't happen. And, uh, but, uh, but I love, I mean, I love Elton John's performance in that. It's so crazed. I mean, the whole film is crazed, but he's really like, I love the fury. You're like, he's really angry <laughs> at this kid coming in and like beating him at his, his favorite sport. And yeah, and the outfit, the whole thing, it's absolutely bonkers. The guest performances are astonishing. And it's, again, I think it's like, it, it's one of those, it, it's one of those moments in history. It reminds me of the band's last waltz, where it was just like, they could basically get anybody they wanted. And, it, you know, the, when you watch that film, where you listen to that soundtrack, it's, it's as much an artifact of an era as it is anything else. You know, just like these were the biggest names that interacted with this group of people at this time, this group of musicians. And there's a bit of that going on with Tommy, I think. There's this incredible kind of like, you know, the zeitgeist of 74, just like who was there, who was part of that British rock scene that we could get in and, and get involved. And in it, because it's kind of all star, isn't it? Definitely. I was so happy to see uh, Arthur Brown show up as well. Oh, God. Yeah. That again in the preacher scene. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Uh, because he only, yeah he gets one of the verses doesn't he just one of the verses but no it's he, yeah completely steals the scene funny enough a lot of people think that's moon i remember talking to someone about that who who wasn't as big a, i mean arthur brown's kind of a i guess a, maybe a bigger figure in the uk than in the states i don't know but i was talking with someone about it and they didn't know who he was but um they thought that was moon but yeah no it's a wonderful moment love that wild-eyed preacher well, I do like that Moon plays more than one role. That I mean, he might still be Uncle Ernie when he's there, because it's him selling the tickets to the Acid Queen, correct? I think that is Uncle Ernie. I think that's Uncle Ernie's day job. Yeah, because he's at that point as well. He's already the, the look he's giving Tommy is, uh, you know, I think he's eyeing Tommy up at that point. He's already kind of plotting and scheming. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty grim. It would make sense too. I mean, that's when you think about who Ernie is, that's the kind of thing he would do for a living. Probably, you know, he's probably works in some CD, you know, CD bookshop in Soho. That sounds about right. <laughs> and of course he's the guy uncle Frank goes to when he's trying to find a, uh, you know, find a woman for Tommy. Yeah. Was there ever any talk of a sequel to Tommy, either the musical or the movie? Not as far as I know. I mean, again, I think that Townsend, the nature of his relationship with the work almost precluded that from happening. Um, because I just think, as I say, you know, he was so determined to, to do something else, do other things and be remembered for other things. I don't think, uh, I don't think a sequel was ever on the cards. And you, I mean, I think it's the, it's also, in my opinion, you, you really, you really kind of couldn't do a sequel without you'd need Townsend and you'd need Russell. I think, I mean, you could make it without one or the other, but, but why, I mean, why would you? Because they're, they're so integral to what makes that film work. I mean, I think I'm not sure it's unique, but it's got to be fairly unusual that you have a a film like that. that is effectively creation of two auteurs, you know, 
Townsend was an auteur composer and, and Russell was an auteur director. And, and having two creative forces of that working at that level, somehow not killing each other, somehow finding a way to get on with each other. I think that's that really is lightning in a bowl. And I think you'd, you'd really struggle to capture it twice. There are songs that The Who has put out where it's like, this feels like it's telling a bigger story. And I've always wondered if it was like a sequel to Tommy or just another project that Townsend was working on. Especially like whenever I hear Behind Blue Eyes, I always think this almost feels like an outtake from Tommy. Ah, well, no. Okay, so that's it's not a direct sequel, but yes. So um, after Tommy, the next big project that Townsend was going to do was the Lighthouse Project. No, hang on. Lifehouse Project was what it was called. That was going to be another rock opera. It, it wasn't a sequel, but it was set in the near future, and the pollution was so bad that people had to spend most of their lives inside what were effectively virtual reality suits, um, where you know to to get the oxygen they needed to live. And at some point, there was going to be a discovery of a, uh, a or a, or the notion of a pure musical note that, if you heard it, would enable you to attain spiritual nirvana or, or transcendence or something like that. Um, and Townsend was working on this after Tommy this was um this is what he wanted to do do straight away and they got to the point of kind of demoing some of it and they they did a series of live performances where they invited people to come to this theater and the idea was somehow that the audience was going to become part of the film in some way um and basically the the project collapsed because Townsend couldn't really explain what it was he was trying to achieve and the band just felt it was kind of a reach too far. And what you ended up with was Who's Next. So a lot of the songs on that are songs that were part of uh, what was originally going to be Lifehouse. And there you can hear that echo. So there's, um, uh, yeah, a few of the tracks on that, 515, uh, Behind Blue Eyes, things like that. They would have been part of that bigger narrative. And I think much later, Tazza did finish a version of it, although not with The Who. I think if you hunt around, it's still out there, but it's really kind of a curio. It's not, it never got that big kind of audience he was hoping it would get. And again, it's really interesting when you hear him interviewed about it. It really does sound like something that he didn't quite understand himself, you know, <laughs> which I admire. I mean, that's great. As an artist, you want to see people who are reaching as far as they can but i think you know the side effect of that is every now and then someone's going to they are you know the reach is going to exceed the grasp and it seems like that's what happened with that project but, i mean you know it's really interesting because they got who's next out of it which is undoubtedly one of their greatest albums it's an absolutely phenomenal piece of work but for townsend it's always a disappointment you know because it's not it's not that thing he was hoping it would be I wonder what it was about the early 70s if rock had just reached this maturity point because it felt like that was kind of the the golden age of rock operas and just, you know, the works that uh, Weber and Rice were doing, uh, that The Who were doing. I mean, even looking at uh, Jim Sharman, just so many people, it felt like they were moving into the theater with that. I mean, for me, it feels as much just a product of ambition as anything else. I feel like there was this incredible thing at the end of the 60s, beginning in the 70s. You got these bands who'd been doing it for. So you had the, you know, the Beatles, the Who, the Stones, the Kinks. And they've been successful for, you know, like, you know, somewhere between seven and 10 years by that point. Most of them, you're talking to sort of, you know, 63, 64, they start out. I think there's almost a collector sense of, of what now, you know, they all started off writing singles. They all kind of graduated at various points to becoming albums bands. I mean, arguably the stones were the last to really make that transition. The Beatles did it as soon as they stopped touring. 
um, the Who did it with Tommy. There's a real feeling of ambition, you know, a real feeling of like raw ambition and, and restlessness and a desire to keep proving themselves. It's really interesting to me because you get this a lot. I think about the modern era with music and a lot of bands, you know, not all by any means, but a lot of bands really do struggle. I mean, people talk about the, the difficult second album and the really difficult third album. And a lot of what that comes down to is the first album doesn't take a year to write. The first album takes 10 years to write. Because you're building up and building up and building up. And, and by the time you come to release your first album, you've got two or three albums worth of songs. So you put your best 10 or your best 12 out. And that's why the first album has always come out of the gates with that raw energy. Then the second album, you know, you've got maybe half a dozen that could have made it on the first. So they stick around. The other half a dozen you have to write. And you're in a different space to where you were. And if you've been successful, you don't have, you don't have the same hunger maybe necessarily. And then by the third album, you know, so many bands end up running on empty. And it's really interesting to me how at that period, because you're right, it wasn't just The Who. You had, obviously, The Beatles are doing Sgt. Pepper. The Stones are doing uh, Satanic Majesty, which, right, is a disaster. But it's an interesting disaster. You know, they're really pushing the boat out. The Kinks are doing the, you know, the Village Green Preservation Society and all that kind of stuff there was there was an incredible explosion of creativity and it really i mean uh, I'm, I'm speculating a bit but it's based certainly on what townsend had to say in his interviews talking about tommy and about quadrophenia it feels like a real a kind of spirit of restlessness and a desire to prove themselves and to kind of bash their heads against the ceiling of what they were capable of and see if they could somehow break on break through it you know and i don't think it was anything as as trite as respectability i don't think any of them were really interested in that as just kind of seeing how far they could take it. And I, and I think, too, it ties in with the spirit of the times. There was a feeling of, like, of possibility. You know, it was the, I mean, it's, this, is, this is the generation that invented the teenager as a concept, because before that you didn't. You were a kid, and then you were a, an adult straight away, and you got a job, you know, whether it was a 12 or 14 or 16 or 18, but you got a damn job, and that was it. You were off. You were doing your thing. Um, and for the first time, you know, you've got this group of people who are they're not adults, but they're not kids. They've got disposable income. There's no war. You know, the country is rebuilding around them, and it's like, what now? You know, what do we do with this? How has the Tommy book been received? It's been incredible. I've been overjoyed with how well it's been received. So, um, Lisey Treble, who's, as I said, Ken Russell's widow, she, she gave me an incredible review on Facebook, just said it was, it was absolutely, she read it in an afternoon as well, because we'd, we'd sent her the review copy and, you know, it was, it was whatever with the post, it was literally the sort of next day and she'd written this incredible thing on, you know, um, so that was it. And that was just really moving because obviously she, you know, she was, she knew Ken probably as well as anyone. And to have her say that she felt it's something he would have proved of and that she was, she was really excited by. And she said that, I mean, you know, she said that she'd read things in there that, that no one else had picked up on so far. And that's, I mean, that's just, I mean, the rest of it almost doesn't matter at that point. You know, that's mission accomplished. That's absolutely incredible. Um, Stephen Volk, who, you know, wrote Gothic, which Russell directed, was, was kind enough to write me a forward, which is something I could never have expected. I mean, again, I just sent him a review copy, hoping he might find time to read it. And he, he came back with a, you know, thousand word introduction. Okay. Thanks, Stephen. I guess, I guess you liked it. Wherever it's been, it's been read and reviewed so far. It's it's done really well. We are cult uh, gave a lovely review of it um, fairly recently, and uh, it seems to be slowly but surely getting out there and doing the rounds. Which is again, it's enormously gratifying. It was hard. It was definitely hard writing nonfiction as opposed to fiction, but um, it was it was a pleasure to do. Uh, and it's certainly it's a very personal book. You know, I was exercising a lot of kind of personal demons with this, and it's enormously gratifying to find that people are beyond 
outside of my own head actually found it had something worth saying as well. So that was that was really nice. Yeah, this section of you and your history with pinball was so great. I was so tickled when you wrote that. Yeah, that was a really odd. I, it was that was a difficult one because I knew I had to write about pinball, and I had I had three different ideas, and it was like, well, you've only got room for one of them. So which one are you going to? I ended up just saying, no, just write all three. So so I did. But yeah, I like that was that was interesting. Yeah, just relating the the personal to the to the universal was kind of kind of fun doing that and i i mean it's i don't know it's an interesting thing i think the more the more i this might just be a function of getting older but the more i look at life and i life contains all kinds of coincidences that that no decent novelist would dare invent you know real life is just riddled with (laughs) with these weird kind of coincidences and synchronicities and what have you um and uh and that is certainly one of them that that moment yeah as a teenager finding the the tommy pinball machine based on the musical and discovering for whatever reason i could just play it yeah it was just it was you know and it, it, again it's one of those things where you kind of you have that moment where it's like is is this a bit self-indulgent well if the editor doesn't like it he can cut it you know <laughs> it's nice to have it's nice to have too many words and then and then people can cut if they don't like it but it, yeah it made it in and I, um, well i'm glad you enjoyed it that's nice to hear this one came out in July of 2019, so I'm curious how long before that had you uh, put it in, because it's probably way in your rearview mirror by this time. Not too much, because I – so I think – I'm trying to remember. I think we were discussing it – I think we were originally sort of thinking about a, a December 18 launch. I think that's what we were aiming for. Um and it got delayed mainly on my end because of the research. It just got so I just realized once I once I hit that brick wall of realizing I can't write this piecemeal. I have to do it chronologically. You know, I have to do it beginning to end to develop the argument properly. Um, that's when I had to kind of go back to Neil and say this is going to take longer. And I'm really sorry, but this is why. And Neil was just I mean I, he's just a dream editor to work with. You know because I mean from from the opening pitch where I said I'm not an expert on Russell. I'm not an expert on the Who. This will just be my experience with the film. And he said that's exactly what I want. I mean this is you know that's that's a dream editor right there. That's a guy you grab hold of with both hands. And, and and it was the same thing when I said, look, I'm really, really sorry. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But here's why it's going to be. And he was like, take, it needs to be right. Take your time. I think that I finished writing it probably, I'm trying to remember when the last big push was. It probably was like January, February 19, maybe. So, no, it's it's not too far in the rear view. And, of course, it's still, it's still being discovered. So I'm still having conversations about it, which is really nice. People are sort of picking it up and they wanted to get in touch. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of... You know, much like the movie itself, much like Russell's work, it's sort of <laughs> it's kind of always there, burning away, and someone's you know someone's going to discover it every now and then, and I want to talk about it. So yeah, it's good. So what are you working on now? Uh, so a bunch of stuff. I've got um, I, I've got a no- my second novel, which I'm co-writing with a friend, is is like achingly close to, to to first draft completion, which is wonderful news. I just sold a novella and a short story collection. Both of which were coming out in April at StokerCon, which is coming to the UK. It's the the Horror Writers Association convention is coming to the UK for the first time in I don't know like a decade or more. Um, and I've got two books launching there, so that's really exciting. Non-fiction book. I'm compiling the first thirty essays of my life in horror, 
Um, so that's now in in book form with uh, full revisions and expansions and a couple of new pieces. And I'm kind of hawking that around at the moment uh, as a project. So I'm hoping to get that uh, get that published somewhere fairly soon. Um, and if if no one wants to pick it up, I'll kickstart it because I think it's uh, I think it's a fun project. And it's very much in the vein of the Tommy book, but it's a, it's a series of essays about, as I say, all kinds of influences. And beyond that, there will be another another monograph. Um, I'm talking to Neil about that at the moment. There's two possibilities. One of them is uh, another co-author piece on the on the movie Scum, which uh, is similar to Tommy. Had a kind of I didn't watch it as young, thank goodness, but it had a pretty seismic impact on me. And the other possibility for me is Natural Born Killers. It's a film that I am similarly obsessed by. And there are kind of there are connections. It has, I think, Natural Born Killers is one of the few movies that comes close to matching Russell's kinetic energy. You know, the way that film is edited and cut together is just absolutely ferocious. You know, it's such a visceral piece. I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of work I really love above all else. I've realised as I've kind of gone through. I really like whether it you know it doesn't matter whether it's music or, or books or movies. It's the stuff that's visceral, you know, the stuff that really, it goes beyond making you think, it makes you feel, you know, it hits you on a gut level. I mean, I've watched Tommy, I don't know how many times, and I'll, I'll sit down and watch it. I could sit down and watch it any day of the week. But it, it, it actually produces a physiological response when I do, you know, <laughs> like when I get to Acid Queen or, or Cousin Kevin or Uncle Ernie, like I get the sweats, you know, I get this kind of, my heart rate goes up and I feel this kind of tightening in my chest. I mean, it's it's really, it is, you know, it, it has a physiological impact and a I love art that does that. And I think Natural Born Killers, I mean, I'm a huge Oliver Stone fan anyway, and I think Killers is the one that really just kind of, he really just, just turn it up to 11 and break the knob off for the entire sort of two hours, you know? So uh, I think that might be fun. The only problem with that is I don't have, it, it won't be as easy to deconstruct. You know, Tommy, as I say, you have this wonderful structure with the songs and that gives you a hook to hang off. I don't know how you begin to, to do it with natural born colors or it does. I mean, it has got an act structure, a very clear act structure, but it's not, it's not as easily defined. So, um, I think I'm going to need to figure out the shape. But yeah, I'd love to do that at some point because it's just, oh, what a great film. Well, with Natural Born Killers, too, you've got the uh, the book about the making of it. You've got the original script. You've got parodies yeah. of it. You've got, um, you know, just looking into, like, where the influences for, like, Mickey, Mallory, Knox came from. There's so many different ways they can go about it. Yeah, there's a lot of avenues. I mean, I could spend quite a bit of time on the soundtrack too. The soundtrack of that film is astonishing. I mean, it's obviously it's the Trent Reznor assembled, but the, I mean the, the Leonard Cohen stuff. I mean, that's actually funny enough. That's the movie that got me into Leonard Cohen because I didn't know his work until I saw that and I heard you know the future and I was like, what is this? You know, and that's that's you know become a separate almost like lifelong long obsession. I'm a big Cohen fan, and the, you know it's direct results. So yeah, the, yeah, there's a lot of avenues. I mean, the novelization is really interesting. Because it, it puts back in some of the scenes from that got cut, you know, the the courtroom scene and stuff like that. So that's quite fun. So yeah, that yeah, there is a lot of material around around that film that you could get into, I guess. Well, is there a good place for people to uh, keep up with you and your work? Yeah, I don't. So I don't have a website, but um, if you want to read my nonfiction work, uh, dot com, and then on your sidebar there's something called My Life in Horror. I don't know. There's like 50 odd columns up there now. Um, that project's going to come to a close when I get to 60. So I've got eight to go. So there's 52 up there. So yeah, that'll, that'll keep you busy for a while. If you want to read my thoughts on any number of things, including, is there a natural born killers essay on there? 
No, Wild at Heart, not Natural Born Killers. The other one. <laughs> but there will be a Natural Born Killers essay on there probably before I'm done. So yeah, check out, check that one out. Uh, if you want my fiction, the easiest thing to do is just to go to Amazon and, and search under books for Kit Power. Um, all of my titles are listed there. You can get ebooks, paperbacks, um, novels, short story collections, all of that good stuff. And I mean, I've got a patron for people if you want to. If you want to read it before anybody else, that's the thing with Patreon. So most of the stuff that goes there will end up getting published uh, one way or another. But uh, the, the deal is early access for a dollar a month. I give people uh, weekly uh, a new piece of writing from me, whether that's fiction, nonfiction, sometimes you know, a book review or, or a bit of a work in progress, whatever's going on. And there's other rewards at higher tiers as well. But that's that's you know, if you want to get it first uh, and and help support me a little bit, that's the way to do it. Um, oh, and podcast, uh, watching Robocop with Kit Power. So if you, if you want to listen to a podcast where a guy sits down and watches Robocop with a different person each month, go and find watching Robocop with Kit Power. There's 20 odd episodes there and loads of bonuses as well. And that's all free. So yeah. Well, Kit Power, thank you so much for your time today. This was great. No problem at all. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. very curious about the timeline of your life and as far as when you first started actually performing in, in public and what that was like for you. I remember when I was about 11, I was, uh, or maybe even earlier, but probably more like about eight or nine, I was King Canute in a, uh, a drama. <laughs> and uh, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, the, the, the costumes and the, the, the sort of entering into a situation, and and of course in in those days I was quite young, so it meant a different thing. But I remember enjoying it immensely. Then later, about the age of um, twelve to fourteen, my brother and I we used to do um, duets, and in some of those as well, we would. Uh, I remember doing uh, one year Edwards go, uh, "'Twas Friday morn when we set sail, and the ship not far from shore. We three jolly sailor boys climbed up and up and up, and the landlubbers lying down below, below, below. We dressed up as sailors and uh, used to perform in various places. And again, I, I find it very enjoyable. Were you 
first a songwriter or did you start to cover more things when it actually came to performing in more of a rock and roll venue? From about the age of 12 or 13, I, I did writing. And uh, in actual fact, let me see, probably when I was uh, 14 or 15, I, I wrote uh, Fire Poem. Uh, I might have changed it very slightly when it came to... Yeah, it, it was uh, something that came... Um, I had it, in, you know, I kept a little book with all the stuff I'd written in, in pen and ink. So later when we were doing the album, I pulled that out and found the fire print. Ah, that was kind of part of the whole... Because I, I was very much into poetry. At school, we we explored a lot of that. Kate Shelley, Tennyson, Browning, or you know the romantic poets and the visionary poets, and uh, and also a lot of Shakespeare. Um, I managed to get through every single Shakespeare play, so then, <laughs> which uh, yeah. And then then of course there was all. So uh, anyway, so. Um, I did. Uh, it started off for me um, a lot of writing, and at the same time, um, I used to go off in the fields and uh, just sing. And I loved singing, and and of course I'd make a lot of it up, and things would kind of pop out. I kept that going later in life and uh, some of the songs came from that particularly after you know you, you get something like um being able to record a, a phone memo so then you can you know record your own song uh, before that you'd have to have had a tape recorder and everything and it got more, more complicated um there were sort of two streams one was the going around singing unaccompanied the other one was writing. It wasn't until, I mean, when I got to London studying law in 1960, I think it was, for a year, uh, that was where I got in very much into contact with uh, traditional jazz, um, modern jazz. And uh, then I, I uh, got more more involved in all of that and uh, left uh, the law school and uh, then I, I took various sort of jobs as one did in those days just to keep going and um, one of them was a, a job in a sewage farm <laughs> and it had this beautiful big uh, control place, you know, with lots of pipes and things. But the sound was great. And then the guy that I uh, was co-working with uh, was quite a good blues player. And so I, I started just to plonk a bit on the guitar and uh, started to sing a bit. And then I, I went back to university in Reading and there... I decided I would join the trad band, and uh, luckily for me, but unluckily for that person, that the the university tradition jazz band. Um, one night I was in the 
students' union having a drink, and I heard someone saying, oh, such a pity about the bass player. He's been sent down, you know. He's removed from the university, but it left the band without a bass player. So I began, I went out and bought a bass. <laughs> and uh, and then the guy in the modern jazz uh, band uh, showed, he, he said, well, if you're going to play a gig with this band, uh, you'll have to know where the chords are. <laughs> And your fingers are soft as putty, so we're going to have to strap them up. So he strapped me up, and within uh, three weeks, I was playing my first rudimentary gigs. <laughs> and then um, that I got quite uh, well liked, and I joined a, a semi-pro band and uh, going around uh, the whole of you know the area around where the Reading Festival is within a, a radius of about 60 miles, maybe 100 miles. And I started to be quite well-liked. I was doing it all just by the feel, playing playing music by the feel rather than learning to read and all of that. Um, and uh, I, I, I kind of began to feel that they asked me to do some uh, singing, and then I started to feel, well, I don't really have a, a great voice. Um, so I went and took classical lessons. And uh, that's where, you know, all the breathing techniques and... All the, uh, you know, scales and minors and uh, modalities and everything. And um, pretty soon I had a good voice, and I got invited up to sing with Acker Bilk. <laughs> it was traditional jazz, and he recorded one tune called Stranger on the Shore, which was uh, one of the most successful uh, instrumental pieces ever ever recorded. I mean, he was just phenomenally... And um, so... I, I got up to sing with him, and that that uh, gave me some good feel. And in that place where I did that, it was Reading, um, Reading Town Hall. And in the following weeks, I went to see various of the blues guys who were just making it, uh, touring in England, and and sort of really getting the blues scene going over there. Sonny Boy Williamson, uh, Memphis Slim, and all, all kind of the early blues guys that nobody actually really knew at that time. And so I, I got, to, got to see them. Uh, I remember going to see Memphis Slim, and, and he was a keyboard blues guy who was a little more sophisticated than, than the down home, you know, muddy waters, blues, and all of those things. And so when, when, uh, this, this place held about 2,000 people, went to see a couple of the blues guys and it was rammed. And then when, when I went to see Memphis Slim, he came out to be greeted by three people. And that was me and two other people. And so we were, we were standing in front of the stage and said, hey, 
come up here. <laughs> so we we went up there, and, and he said, you know, best party I was ever at, there was only two of us, so let's just do this thing. And then he played to us for an hour and a quarter, just standing next to him, and it was uh, amazing. You know, I just thought, yeah, well, that's that's real performing. You know, you don't go like, well, I'm going home. Uh, no, you you do it and you play your best. You don't ever, ever, you know, just let it be something mechanical because you're feeling a bit upset or something. That's not performing. Performing is you put yourself aside and the <clears throat> the music speaks, you know. And so <laughs> those things uh, became, you know, quite in, important in my uh whole development of a style. Um my I'm uh, you know, seeing how um the the blues the audience that was uh into trad jazz at that time and modern jazz suddenly uh wafted away and uh they were going to see, you know, blues and the initial beginnings of what became Sort of the, the later rock and roll, you know, Rolling Stones and all of those. And, uh, in my case, I remember finally getting to be asked to play with one, one of these successful, uh, bands going all around the universities. Uh, they were called the Yellow Dog Band, which was a, a trad band. But again, when I walked out to do my pick, they, they usually drew about 2,000, 3,000. <laughs> And um when I went out, there was about 120 people. And I could hear this, while we were playing, this rather, you know, loud din coming from somewhere else. So when I got off stage, I, I went down, and I think it was Manfred Mann was playing. And uh all that, that's where all the audience were. And I thought, well, um, I love trying to ask, but maybe... It's time to move, and and so my I, I had a band of my own in the university, which was a kind of modern jazz, come bluesy style, and I just kind of within two weeks did it, got a totally new set together, uh, which was more bluesy, and and then I joined um, a mod band, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, in in London in Fulham, and uh, that was where I learned a lot of my uh, style. And I auditioned for it, and they took me on. And then that came to me, and I went off to Paris, and that was where I first started developing all the theatre in the music, and because Paris at that time uh, played in Montmartre which was the old artist's quarter. And um, it was kind of some of the fashion was getting to begin the flower power fashion uh, somewhat earlier than, than England, I think, at that point. And uh, that was just a very wild club. And so I started leaping around. And there you go. That's That's the first answer. Where and when did the idea of strapping a contraption to your head and setting it aflame come from? It was like a lot of the other things. I was in the hotel 
And one morning I, I opened my door and there, there, there were some uh, wild parties used to go on. I was never involved in those because we were so busy uh, playing, you know, long, long sets down at the, the club. But um, somebody had left outside my room, obviously on the way away from one of those parties, uh, a crown. And it had candles in it. So I started to wear that down the club. And then there was, uh, while we were playing one night, a woman came in with her young child. And um, he said to me, he was only about seven or eight, he said, you should black your teeth out. <laughs> and, and for an opening line, that was a pretty good opener for me. And I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I thought, well, I've got a crown of flames. <laughs> See, well, uh, blacking the teeth out, and they, the audience kind of loved it. And from there came, you know, various... Uh, we, 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 There wasn't really enough time because we were playing uh, three long sets a night, and uh, we played twice on Sunday. So it was, uh, we didn't have a lot of time for rehearsing. So all we would do is just extend some of the numbers, different numbers each night. And, uh, gradually into that, because of the, you know, wanting to introduce new things, not just musically, but, um, started to bring in some, what you'd call skits, really, and, I remember when we did the the Pope cutting General de Gaulle's hair because he had just put out some sort of edict that uh, any person with uh, trying to cross the border with long hair, uh, the the police were to cut their hair. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, we'll have the Pope cutting General de Gaulle's hair, and now all all skits like that are. Uh, Started to creep in, and and there was the, you know, the the candles thing and um, various costumes, or or the Statue of Liberty with a uh, bucket in one hand and a mop in the other. Generally, you know, to make fun of a lot of it, and so that that was where it began. And then when that scene came to an end, you know, the French scene goes usually goes for years. Uh, something becomes big and then everybody goes off, uh, down to the beaches for summer. And then when they come back, they want another thing. So we, we, I went back to England and that was where the, uh, the crazy world formed. And of course, then there was more experimentation with theatre and a kind of good balance in the act of, uh, you know, uh, frightening things and, and funny things. And where did the fire song itself come from? We'd been playing for a while, and I had uh, various songs and, and an idea. Usually the the first album a band records is, is what they've been thinking about. <laughs> you know, and, and if it's cars and money and girls and everything, that's, that's what gets into the albums. And in my case, I had been introduced by my father because, you know, our family, my grandparents had a, a hotel in Whitby that was 
blown to bits, to dust, actually. And um, we were down underneath it in the bomb cellar. Came up, there was no nothing left, and there wasn't a lot of money in those days for you know helping you. The country was, you know, all the money was going on the war, so it, it meant that um, our property was gone. They went, my parents went down, lived in London, and that was blown apart that that place, and so you get that whole thing of uh, uh, somewhat PTSD type symptoms coming into the family through all of that stuff. And, you know, being being in London where at the time of the Blitz when the, all the houses were on fire, we lived in the East End and all the streets were on fire, you know, and you couldn't leave a curtain open at night in case the shaft of light showed the planes where you were and then they'd vomit. <laughs> so a lot, a lot, you know, of the... Well, because of of the the disturbance that it had uh, psychologically for my parents, my father decided when I was very young that um, he brought this fellow home. He said, I'm going to teach you to empty your mind and then taught me a kind of formless uh, meditation. And so I don't know when by the time I... Um, I got to write the album. I'd, I'd been doing those kind of things, and, and one of my favorite meditations was gazing into the fire, and you get through the, you know, the different bits of chemical in the coal and everything get different colors suddenly shoot out, and you've got all that movement going on, and it gets hotter and hotter. And eventually, you can, you can see through all that into the center of the fire, which is nearly white. And that doesn't uh, move. You, you, you're into a kind of place where everything's still and quiet, and nothing moves, and your mind doesn't move. So anyway, by the time I got to write a, <laughs> an album, that, that was what had preoccupied me came up with the idea of, okay, well, I have a story of a character who comes out of the, well, you say, he finds the, the normal everyday world to be uh, a bit nightmarish. And so the process of uh, finding the, how do you have a, a life that's not based on the, the nightmare? And, and so it was by, the, one of the lines in there, there's only one way out, go bathe yourself in fire. And it, and, it, and it was really the process of the mind slowly becoming still and going through the kind of dualistic thought patterns that if, if they're the dominant ones, that, that, that creates a lot of problems. So that, that was the, the, the fire suite. And in actual fact, uh, the whole album was written as, as a suite, and uh, Kit Lambert, the manager of the Who, who was recording it, he didn't want. He said nobody's going to want to listen to an album about fire. So I said, oh, well, I disagree. And eventually, he, he agreed to let me have control over the one side, which was the fire side. And he, 
had control over the side, which had more. It had some one or two of the tracks that were going to be on the fire album uh, proper, and uh, but he wanted also the ones, the numbers that were very popular on stage, and that was, um, uh, for instance, I put a spell on you, the old screen, Jay Hawkins and Nina Simone, and then James Brown's I've Got Money, and uh, a lot of it was, you know, I had we had it uh, roughly done in Pete Townsend was the one who took it on himself to, he said, yeah, I, I like this whole idea. So he was the one who persuaded Lambert and Stamp that he did the first demos. We didn't really have any experience with recording. So he did the first demos and, and was very helpful and, and creative with it as well. So that, that became the fire album. And then, then there was a, a problem with, um, the kind of drumming that our drummer did was not the kind of rhythmic hold that um, Atlantic uh, was used to. And so um, they felt that, uh, well, this drumming's not correct. And Lambert just said, so, well, we've, we've spent a lot of money getting this album this far, so we can't possibly just start all over again. What can we do? And then Lambert's father was a classical composer. So Lambert uh, said to Vincent, the, the keyboard player, um, oh, do you, you studied at uh, Trinity College of Music, classical uh, piano. Um, did you learn any composition stuff? And he said, yeah, I can compose, I can conduct. <laughs> he'd put some arrangements on it and and I remember he just had a a folder with um many you know musical manuscript and we'd we'd be travelling backwards and forwards to the gig here and the gig there and he would just have all these sheets on the underground trains <laughs> of uh, manuscript. And we'd you know we all discussed it, and uh, and it was very much a uh, yeah you know communal effort really on on all fronts. Is it true that you hadn't heard this Screaming Jay Hawkins version of "I Put a Spell on You" that you based yours more on Nina Simone? In Paris, there were two separate occasions where someone from the the audience took me off and said, "I've got to play you something." One was the uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins version. Of I put a spell, and the other was Nina Simone's. And the Nina Simone, I mean, I, th- I thought, you know, Screaming Jay's as it is, still sounds extraordinary. Um, because I had had that background in, you know, modern jazz playing bass in a modern jazz quartet. For me, the, that one just really got me. I, I made them play it. Uh, about 25 times in a row, just so I could, oh. By the time we uh, recorded it, The Crazy World, we'd played that a, a lot of times. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Do you have any estimation on how many times you've probably sung fire in your life? Oh. <laughs> well, I should imagine, oh, it must go into the tens of thousands. 
I have spent so many hours of my life just staring at that darn album cover for The Crazy World. And can you tell me the story behind that? I mean, I love that it's, I love that it's out of focus. You know, it's just like, forget clean photography and it, it's perfect. It looks like you're in motion in that photo. What actually happened with, you know, Lambert and Stamp were, uh, when they were involved with The Who, they, they actually were filmmakers and, uh, who at that time were called the High Numbers. Lambert and Stamp went and found them, wanted a band play some music they can make a film about, and then of course ended up managing the band and everything. And, and so they were very much into the art end of the presentation and the music. And and they loved the the fact that our, our performances were in those days regarded as avant-garde. So they they decided well then we have to make all of the what we do have the same kind of a artistic standard. So the photographs everything must be instead of just doing posed photographs a lot they would take film and then take a, a shot from the film because it would have energy or moving energy to it. They got hold of. Two people, David Montgomery, and, and they were presented with, okay, the first solarized, uh, photograph used on, on an album, which was the back cover, uh, which was, you know, my face, but solarized. And then they got, um, <laughs> uh, David Montgomery to, to, and he decided, okay, uh, this man uses makeup. So I'll paint as much as I can of him <laughs> and then take a photo of it and then and just take a little section of the photo. So what, what you're seeing there uh, is actually, you know, the glasses with the star painted on and, and the face. And the, but it, it, it can look like just about anything. Because it wasn't, it, 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 they didn't want to particularly go out of all that. You know, you've got your portrait in the back. This is something else we have to create. Uh, yeah, so that's how that came about. You mentioned Pete Townsend before, and I'm curious what your relationship with him has been like over the years. At the time of uh, Fire and Everything, he, he was uh, a big uh, influence, if you like, and support. Because he obviously had the experience of big uh, traveling. Uh, he himself was uh, the reason he liked uh, the idea I had to put them together in you know, a story, but not necessarily written uh, poems and songs. Um, was that he himself was thinking of a huge dramatic piece, which was going to be about rail. Um, and it was, uh, um, as I recall, about China. And that sort of mutated and everything and uh, ended up as Tommy eventually. And and at the time we were working, he was, uh, he was determined that the I was going to be Tommy. And then, you know, Lambert and Stamp eventually said, no, no, you've got to really put this for the the band, you know, it's got to and of course that 
it was a different beast because the Who didn't go out and play with strings and all of those things that eventually, uh, when the movie came up, uh, you had a vast amount of music. So he, he at that stage was very, yeah, we, uh, we talked a lot. Um, I remember him saying he thought I was a bit posh. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, it was obviously, you know, he's an intelligent man who was able to sort of vocalize the, the feelings and thoughts of it, the people he was addressing which grew wider and wider as he embraced the, you know, the alternative culture as well as the, the mod culture. And, and, and yeah, so uh, I find his, his uh, uh, interest in things to be quite inspiring and uh, his uh, acceptance and willingness uh, to explore with us that was that was really good. He after that, you know, we did tour with them and uh <laughs> some majestic evenings with Mr. Moon. Yeah, quite an amazing drummer. And uh yes, uh, uh, an uncontrollable energy. <laughs> Wild evenings and um and we did tours with, you know, the Who, Joe Cocker, the Mind Benders, uh and various other people. And, I mean, Pete was one of the team that decided which record would come as the single off the final album. There was, uh, when I was on the, my second tour of America, I had a red letter from Pete saying, uh, you know, we're, um, we are trying hard to decide which image would be best to present to the public of your, uh, because, you know, the show was uh, a lot of comedy as well as the darkness. And, of course, you can't really put both of those on one single in one song, or at least we didn't have that. And um, eventually said they decided that the darker image was going to be one that they could project with more, yeah, more entirely. And so instead of uh, the comedy we got the, the God of Hellfire. And so that, that went on. Later, he did a version of Fire himself with the Who, and I went to see them. But, of course, I went to live in America for 16 years in Austin, so I, I lost contact with him, really, except occasionally going to see a concert with him. I met up with, uh, with him again occasionally. And, um, yeah, he... he He's a, still a, obviously he's now one of the, historically one of the top brands ever. Um, and I haven't really, I would say I haven't seen him for about um, 10 years now because of my my life went a different way. I went to live, live in Portugal and, and try various alternative things, you know, uh, living in Europe and stuff like that. So our, our lives changed and went in a different direction. What was it like being in Tommy? How were you approached and what was the actual shoot like for you? At the time, I, w- I was uh, 
studying in um, uh, a Gurdjieffi place at the time. So it was Mr. Bennett, uh, John Bennett, who was Gurdjieff's English right hand man. I was studying with him and uh, lived in that kind of community. And um, so I got a thing from Pete saying that finally uh, they were going to do this film and that there were six or seven parts that I might be able to take. And one was the one that uh, Jack Nicholson did. Uh, one was the one that Elton Stein finally did. And there was a thing that... that uh, I'd had an earlier disagreement with Mr. Stigwood, who who was the overall producer of that, and director, I think, uh, and producer of that film. And he had, from what I uh, gather from the various sources that have been written since, long uh, discussions and disagreements with Mr. Tigwood as to who was to take what part. And I was supposed to be the priest eventually, after all the demos went through. Um, and uh, Mr. Stigwood uh, didn't want it. And Pete argued and argued, and eventually um, uh, Eric Clapton was put in that part. But then, for some reason, I've never found out why, uh, after recording a couple of the, the verses, um, Eric decided he, I think he cut his hair <laughs> and decided he didn't want to do any more of that part. And so I was called in um, to do the part that I was originally going to do. But there was only one, one they'd already filmed their stuff, and there was only one uh, verse left, if you like, that they needed. And so, it, it, uh, you know, Ken Russell at that time was a, one of the groundbreaking uh, producers and filmmakers of the quiet movies. And what I sort of found with him was that he, he had a kind of vision. It wasn't so much that he um, would work it all out, but he knew what what he wanted to feel and and be encountering in the the thing. So with me, he said, "Right, you've got this tune, this song. What what way can you do it?" And so the dancers were brought in. The and then um, some of the extras, and he said, "Right, now you go off with the track." And you work out with these people what you're going to do. And so off, off I went. We spent about uh, the morning, I think, working it all out. And um, then he came and said, okay. And we filmed it probably, oh, at least 20 odd times over and over. And he, he liked what what the whole thing was, and of course, then then it be, you know then it became part of the Marilyn Monroe Grotto scene, and so he he would you know would perform it, and then he mm, yes that was that was good, but uh, oh no 
I'm not feeling it yet. I'm not feeling it. And uh, I was doing a lot of uh, screaming and leaping about and everything. So there was, it was quite intensive. And then finally, probably just about when I thought, oh, I've never heard this buddy thing. One time I just said, yeah, that's it. And that was it. And so but it was, in, in fact, you know, a good way to work. He, he kind of drew the best out of by by allowing them to offer up what they they felt they could really do. This was in my case. I'm sure it's probably the same with uh, the other artists. You know, just and then get it played out and make minor you know minor changes and all of that as it's going on until he could actually see. The thing that was making him feel what he'd originally wanted to feel then. So it was a, yeah, it was a good, good experience all around for me and a good learning experience. And he was, uh, after that, he said, right, um, next thing you're going to do is the Pope in the next movie. And then, ah, uh, but then Ringo came in. So that was that. <laughs> can't believe the Ringo star upstaged you. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you learn on that as well, the other side of it, all, all the business end of it, that, that sort of uh, is one of the deciding factors of of who does what and when. And so that was uh, my experience. Uh, very enjoyable. I was actually uh, in, in the Gurdjieff place and I sneaked out <laughs> and uh, I was driven to the studios I think it was Shepperton Studios by the one of the other students who was fancy being a bit rebellious um, and he was the uh, he became the chauffeur for Laurence Olivier Tell me what you've been up to lately because it doesn't seem like you're slowing down very much at all at the moment, it's a project that we've had going for about uh, four years, and uh, it, it's um, a project between initially uh, between myself and uh, my partner Claire. She said one day, "Well, what do you want to do with this? You know, you return to performing after quite a long hiatus. What do you want to do?" And um, so out of that, it's kind of about four years of uh, examining, uh, discussing. So we we came up with the idea of a, a kind of multimedia presentation, which was to be really in in 1972, three, four, or 71, two, three, I think it was, um, Kingdom Come was the band that I had and we were very experimental. We were the first band to base the band on a drum machine, which was the Bankley Rhythm Ace, and it involved a lot of synthesizers and stuff, and uh, projections and screens and uh, props. And that was limited by the technology of the day. So. The idea came up, well, why don't we uh, take all the, the 50 years <laughs> and then distill all of that into a, 
a multimedia presentation, taking advantage of the, the technological uh, advances that have made a lot of the ideas that were, were present then but were not capable of being done. Claire and I, in, in our conversations and such, um, sort of pieced that together. And there, there was an album came out, which was very connected with it, which was um, made by a friend in America, Mike Morgan, with with us. And um, it, it's uh, we, we've done, done a self release of it. Um, it's called Gypsy Buddha, and that was going to be uh, that went slightly in a different way. Uh, but it, it became uh, part of this show, um, and and so gradually we've uh, developed it, the idea of it. And um, my my partner Claire is uh, uh, a brilliant person uh, in, in many fields, and and so the band makeup now is done. Uh, by her, she also designs the costumes and uh, is the manager of the thing. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's been quite an amazing progress, and it's involved, you know, touring America with Carl Palmer and Yes and uh, Asia, and doing various things and getting awards and stuff like that, which. Uh, had been all in abeyance because that wasn't what was going on, and then, and so it's been a you know a really successful move in that that area, and it's meant that um, you know say on the yes tour we met uh, um, a guy called Andy who does some of the projections, and and he was just so adventurous. We uh, joined forces with him for the visuals of the acting, and Claire and he worked out a lot of the presentational and uh, visually. So we're, we've got this show together now, and it's uh, we've done the first uh, three performances, and it, it is quite amazing, and it, it, it is a different discipline than just having a band with lights. Because the the, the 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 lighting and the movement of shadows and whatever uh, on stage uh, can be as much a, an influence on the music as the music is on that. So it's it's not uh, it's a, a true multimedia thing rather than you know a musical piece with some. Some illustration, and um, and it's also kind of our performances are designed to be kind of immersive, so you'll get a whole evening out of it, and the whole of the evening is is all of it, the theatre, the audience as well, and so uh, it's it's uh, you know a wonderful combination of. Uh, everything so far. You said it was touring around. Is that currently just in England? Yeah, we've, uh, we were in America most of the last two years. So we're 
you know, now we need to give England a bit of a, a show. Although, we, you know, the, there are various offshoots of the time in America, one being the Gypsy Voodoo album. One, another is that I'm doing an album of uh, <laughs> the the horror tunes that were around in the 50s. You remember those old... Uh, oh, like Monster Mash and those? Uh, yeah, but but ones that but not monster mash, but that that genre. Uh, but bringing them up to some kind of modernity, and that's through um, through Cleopatra uh, in LA. Well, Mister Brown, thank you so much for your time today. You've been so generous, and I really appreciate talking with you. We are talking about Tommy and fucking A. I can't believe that I got to talk to Arthur Brown. I used to listen to Arthur Brown's albums like a crazy world. I used to listen to that all the time when I was in high school. My friend uh, Leon, who I think both of you know, he had the whole fanfare fire poem written out on the back of a denim jacket that he used to wear around. So I would love when he would wear that because then I could just see like, get me out of here, please, at the very end. (laughs) Didn't didn't I digitize your vinyl copy? I think you did. Yeah. And long time ago. Mine was, I had, I think, the stereo version, because then I'll hear the mono version, and I'm just like, this is not what I'm used to. What the hell is going on here? (laughs) 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 It's amazing how you can get so used to an album, and then when you hear even just like a slight difference, but there are major differences between that mono and, and stereo version. There's like a woman talking before, I think, uh, maybe coming by or one of those. And it's just like, whoa, what is going on here? I don't know this bit at all. Oh, God. Yeah. Arthur Brown, I think, is so, like, so underrated in the scope of music. Because I think if, if all, like, anybody listening, if all you really know is Fire, check out, yeah, definitely check out that first album. But check out, like, his subsequent stuff. This is a cat who is never been boring he's not even capable of it i mean even like just guest appearances like um you know because one of my all-time musical heroes uh is robert calvert uh who is best known for his work with hawkwinds but um you know brown pops up on a on calvert's first solo album uh captain lockheed and uh it's just I love Arthur Brown. Like we to to say that we're all alive in a timeline where we have this man is 
fucking cool because <laughs> he's just he's great and i think uh for the record i think his version of i put a spell on you is one of the best i like his give them a flower song oh yeah you know that one yeah i wasn't familiar with that until just recently when i was watching a little uh youtube clip that was talking about arthur brown and they were talking about give him uh give them a flower and i was like oh okay this is pretty cool and then i uh ended up buying the story of Arthur Brown, I think it might have been called, and that was on there, and a bunch of stuff I had never heard before. It was wonderful. Yeah, that popped up on a few uh, British psych comps, and that's where I first heard it. But, you know, funny song. I was really kind of put out the other day. I was watching this. There's this channel on YouTube called Trash Theory, and I usually really like their videos, and they'll do like the story of this song or the story of this rock movement, you know, how the Smiths became popular or all these kind of things. And there was one called before black Sabbath, how psychedelic rock became metal. He went through a half an hour of discussion and no mention of Arthur Brown. And I don't want to be that guy, but I was just like, dude, Arthur Brown was really important to metal, to glam, to just so many things, to music overall. And it's like, how can you forget him? And they just went right past him completely. And I was like, come on. And like, again, to your point, Heather, I mean, all of the different uh bands that he's worked with over the years it's like these are important bands and he's doing this work with them and also doing this these amazing things on his own and with his own band i mean i think he was one of the first guys to use a drum machine with kingdom come and he was the first one of the first people to use a uh, a radio mic headset to um you know because he would come down from the fucking ceiling with his head on fire doing uh, fire and it's just like yeah he needed a microphone so then he couldn't wait to get to the stage so he's got a radio mic and he's one of the first guys to do that so he's making these advances plus he's making fucking fantastic music there always seems to be in music criticism um a very dumb tendency to where anybody that does anything theatrical tends to immediately get kind of undervalued, you know, like you see it. I mean, like Alice Cooper now kind of has respect, but in the seventies, any of the rock guys, definitely, I mean, even the tubes who were definitely not doing the horror kind of aspect were, you know, pretty much kind of not ever regarded well critically. And, and that's a shame. And with Arthur Brown, I can't even imagine doing that. A good antidote to that, though, is there's actually a YouTube uh, channel I follow called Todd in the Shadows, who's like a music. Um, he usually does like pop music critiques, but he has a series called One Hit Wonderland. And he actually like when he gets a subject, like cause I usually hate stuff where it's like, oh, One Hit Wonders, because it usually undermines like artists who are really good and just, but he goes beyond that. Like he does his research and just uh, his episode on fire is really great. And you could tell like he became just like a new fan of Arthur Brown as general researching that. Cause he discovered all of that stuff and he points it out and he covers it. And, um, and I love that, you know, that's the, this, this man, I mean, there should be a documentary on Arthur Brown. Yeah, and there is a book about him by uh, Polly Marshall called The God of Hellfire. Highly recommended. But yeah, to your point, there's enough footage, there's enough just amazing anecdotes that I would love a uh, full-length Arthur Brown documentary. I think that would be wonderful. And the man's still with us, so get on it right now. Come on, people. We'll contribute to your crowdfunder. Just make this happen. That's right. 
So, Skiz, were you familiar with Neil Innes's Concrete Jungle Boy? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That video from uh, Rutland, what is it, Rutland Weekend Television, what the fuck, man? That's just so amazing that it's like a, a Tommy parody film embedded inside of this segment from Rutland Weekend Television. Yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, well, that show we could probably talk about for, well, we have talked about it for hours. Right. <laughs> The, the parody and, and also, well, it's not a Tommy parody, but the, the band, the Coolies, the Georgia band that, that did, uh, two albums. The first one was Dig, which was all Paul Simon covers. And the second album was Doug, which was a rock opera about a, a, a skinhead who kills a drag queen that's written a recipe book, a cookbook, and then publishes it as his own and becomes, rich and famous, but there's a, a who parody type song or a, a song done in the style of the who on that album that is uh, up there with Ennis's tribute. It was weird because I didn't take concrete jungle boy, the song as much of a who parody, but then just those weird visuals with Eric Idol basically playing Tommy and the, the woman with the uh, swastika armband chasing him and just like having just watched Tommy and then watching that video, I'm just like, okay, there's an image of the sun and she's got this big circle and just all of these different things. And the person next to him in the movie theater with the gas mask on, I was just like, okay, yeah, they are really channeling Ken Russell don't they actually say it don't they actually joke that it that ken russell made it they might and then i want to say though the sun at the end has ken russell's face in it uh-huh. the clip that i saw <laughs> i don't think they say that but it seems like you know i saw a clip from the larger hole i didn't see the whole episode and then i saw another uh version of the same song that he must have done uh for the what was that the song book one i can't remember um, but it's a great, another great version of, uh, I mean, that's a really good song, Concrete Jungle Boy, for Book of Records. That's what it was. Heather, did you get a chance to check out that video? Uh, I have not, but I definitely need to remedy that ASAP. In fact, I'll probably do that as soon as we get done recording, because, um, you know, I um, Neil Ennis is a figure I've, I've always admired, and I know we just lost him recently. And, and I hate being one of those people when somebody dies that you know you're like oh shit i need to do a deep dive on this guy and yeah i need to so now i will i will remedy that i always love though how like every episode we kind of end up doing like a like almost kind of a cool playlist for people to sort of scope out like this episode in particular and i guess kind of bringing it back to uh arthur brown a little bit too i believe that he if he didn't work with, he was at least familiar with and ran in some of the same circles because the Bonzo Doodah Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. The yes. Bonzo Dog Doodah Band was mentioned in that uh biography of, of Brown several times and it's just like, okay, that it makes sense to me. Oh god, I love I love that band. <laughs> oh god, I mean like Urban Spaceman, look out, there's a monster coming. Oh, it's so good. See, that's more work for everybody to do listening. Check this band out. Well, thank you so much, guys. I'm so glad that we were able to do this. And uh, Heather, I got to ask you, uh, you know, as a uh, Rondo nominee, I'm sure you're working on a lot of things. Have you bought a new chair yet? <laughs> God damn it, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I don't know what you speak of. Uh, no, I, I haven't. I'm sitting in my old trusty office chair, like a she's my she's my captain, my captain, <laughs> and I, I'm not giving her up for anything. Um, so uh, alas, but uh, I think I think the greatest nomination that one can get in life is uh, is support. And when somebody gets to put you on a show, so thank you, Mike. This is better. Working with you is better than any award. Wow. Holy cow. So, Heather, what have you been up to lately? Uh, well, uh, the latest installment of my tribute to the late great actor Charles Rocket, The Rocket Files, is up and live at my website, mondoheather.com. This time I look into his heavy metal accordion appearances on the early 1980s cult New York City public access show TV Party. And Skiz, what's happening with you? Uh, I'm promoting the hell out of Ice Pick to the Moon with screenings all over where I'm selling the DVD while I'm trying to figure out how to sell them online. And in the meantime, I'm working on the next film, Sound Mechanic, about the artist Neil Feather. Oh, that's awesome. Very cool. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Welcome to the camp. I guess you all know why we're here. Put on your eye shades, you know where to put the cork. Hey, you getting drunk? So sorry, I've got you sussed. Hey, you smoking Mother Nature? This is a bust. Hey, hung up old Mr. Normal. Don't try to gain my trust. Cause you ain't gonna follow me any of those ways Although you think you must Take it, gonna break it, gonna shake it, let's forget it, better still. Now you can hear me, your ears are truly sealed. You can't speak either, your mouth is filled. See nothing, and pinball completes the scene. Here comes Uncle Ernie to guide you to your very own machine. We're not gonna take it. 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 Take it, never did and never will. 
forsake you, gonna rape you, let's forget you better still. Since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball from 
Soho down to Brighton. I must have played them all, but I ain't seen nothing like him in any amusement hall. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays a mean pinball. Stands like a statue, becomes part of the machine. Feeling all the bumpers, always playing clean. He plays by intuition. I never seen him fall. The deaf, dumb, and blind kid sure plays me in ball. Don't hear no buzzes and bells Don't see no lights of flashing He plays by sense of smell He always gets a replay The digit counters fall That deaf, dumb, and blind Kid sure plays a mean ball. He's a pinball wizard He has to be a twist A pinball He's got such a supple wrist He's a pinball wizard His score shoots even more The pinball wizard The world's new pinball lord Your mind through sacred fire leaves. 
the pathway you must take to drag you from the mire. Soothe the darkness from your feet, burn down your funeral pyre. To set in the water for tea, pockets of love for nothing to find. Crystals of beauty to melt in the sea, soaking it into a mind full of fire. Your hands for the sun and set yourself free. Come and see, come and But my dreams, they are 
was empty As my conscience seems to be That's never free No one knows what it's like To feel these feelings Like I do And I blame you No one bites back as hard on their anger None of my pain and woe can show through But my dreams, they aren't as empty As my conscience seems to be That's never free
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.